three, two, one. The great and powerful Pat Militich. I don't know about that, but you are. Listen, man, I'm, it's an honor to have you in here. Thank honestly. you. I've, hey, you know what? I've been watching your show for a long time, and you're a contrarian thinker. I love it, and you've you've prompted a lot of people to think differently, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think information prompts people to think differently. You know? Well, when they get pounded with it enough and hear it enough, yeah, eventually it starts to sink in, right? Yeah, I think so, man. And when you talk about um, guys who have been around. Like you, you are one of the real pioneers of MMA. You know, it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you in here. I remember back when you were fighting. I remember back when you fought Matt Hume and what was that like? And uh, extreme, extreme battle, battle, battle. Yeah, that was John yeah. Peretti's thing. I mean, right. dude, you've been around. You've been around. You were the early days, bare knuckle. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, and the thing is, I always Didn't tell you fight people. Dan Severn. Yeah, yeah. We fought to a draw. Who's two hundred and seventy pounds at the time? Yeah, and he was still. Obviously, pretty tough back then. Still pretty mobile. It was not a not a fun fight. I can tell you, carrying his weight around for thirty minutes, but <laughs> it was tough. But Matt Hume is the guy that made me realize that I wasn't a fighter yet because I was fifteen and zero. I think I was ranked fourth in the world. I fought Matt, ragdolled him for basically the whole first round, threw him around like a ragdoll. But he was just biding his time and waiting, and he caught me with some knees and damaged my nose. And the referee, or the yeah, the referee and the doctor stopped the fight because back then it was very controversial. They didn't want a guy with a crushed nose or whatever, and so they stopped the fight. But I realized at that point he knew a lot more than I did. Yeah, so. that was an interesting fight because I totally disagree with that stoppage. And I was watching, I was like, "This is crazy! How right. could you stop a fight for a broken nose?" Well, and it was it, I got headbutted. I used to spar with a lot of pro boxers. And I got headbutted by a pro boxer, and he separated the cartilage from the bone. So that gap is still there. So that's what they felt. My nose was mm. bleeding a little bit, but so that's why that's why they stopped it. So. Right, but broken noses are just normal. it happens, right? And it's not dangerous. It's like, like maybe somebody saw those movies where you like like remember in a movie a guy would hit the bottom <laughs> of a guy's nose and drive the bone up into his brain. It's like Mike Tyson talking about it, right? I yeah, think he, <laughs> he did. He hit him like this and put it push it. Bone, yeah. bone up through the brain. That might be the worst Mike Tyson impression I've ever heard. I'm going to let that go, though. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Doing my best, man. Yeah, but back then, yeah, nobody really knew uh, like what was dangerous, what wasn't dangerous. It wasn't like a, a body of fights that we could draw right. upon. And I was doing televised debates with politicians at the time. Were you really? To keep the sport legal in the state that I was scheduled to fight in. So think of how stressful it is to train for a fight, stay healthy, try and pay your bills, do all the stuff you're doing. And at the same time, I'm debating politicians in that state who are trying to pass a bill to ban the sport that I'm scheduled to fight in that state. I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. So I'd do my homework, and I'd get in debates like Representative Boland from Illinois. I got By the time we got done with the debate, he goes, I'll agree with Mr. Militich. He's obviously, you know, I think they, they expected to go into a, a debate with a punch-drunk boxer. Right, right. And by the time the debate was done, I'd crushed him. And he's like, well, maybe if we could just do away with headbutts, you know. That was his rebuttal at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I see how they think, and I see that thought. But I think today, even to this day, I, I don't mind headbutts. I don't either, because you train yeah. for them. Yeah. If they're legal, that's what you're training for. And it's a legit technique. Like, why is it okay to slam your elbow into someone's face, but it's not okay to slam your forehand into someone's face? Right. And it's very effective. If a guy's tying you up in the guard... And his head's right there. And you can do that. Right. And he can't really do it back to you. It's, it's and I, a, I mean, I, I watched when I was in my first no-holds-barred tournament in Chicago. Uh, God, I don't even remember the name of it anymore. It's been so long. But um, 
I saw a guy get headbutted 42 times in the first round, and he ended up winning with a triangle. Wow. He ended up winning the fight. It was Marcel Leverich versus this guy named Johnson, Mike Johnson, I think his name was. Marcel Leverich ends up losing after crushing him with headbutts. Mike Johnson's in the shower. They're running cold water on him, trying to wake him back up, and he collapses, and they have to throw in an alternate. Right? Wow. But it was, yeah, headbutts obviously were legal then. So. Wow. Yeah, headbutts, like, knees, that was Mark the Hammer, Coleman's Knees move. on the ground. Knees on the ground, knees right. to the head on the ground. Yeah. But, I mean, think about when Coleman was in his prime, he was all about headbutts. And when mm -hmm. he fought Maurice and he took Maurice down, that was back in the days when headbutts were legal. Yeah. Maurice Smith, he defended against all yeah. that. Doing all of this. Yeah. And, yeah. It's just another technique. Yeah. And, yeah. But without that technique, it's sort of like when I um, – one of the one, when I realized that Taekwondo was very limited was when I started working out with kickboxers. I started getting punched in the face, and I was like, "Oh no! <laughs> like, what have I learned? I've learned this, you know, thing that is only good if somebody doesn't punch you in the face. Like, this is terrible." But you know, you were an open thinker, obviously, and you realized. And so the thing was, with early MMA, everybody was so tied to their technique. It's like being tied to a religion and right. refusing to see something else. Yeah, right? there was a lot of that. So guys who are Taekwondo experts, wrestlers, this, that, they were so so attached to their art mm -hmm. that they refuse to learn anything else and they just die because of it yeah right? they get crushed because of it and i just early on went these guys are dumbasses. why wouldn't you want to know how to yeah. do a lot of things you got to have a, a big toolbox well, there right? was always a lot of pride in your art right there was always a lot of guys like wrestlers yeah. who are only into wrestling or kickboxers only into muay thai they just want to stand right. up they didn't want to go to the ground they just yeah. want to stand up and that that just costs you in the long mm -hmm. run, especially yeah. when you see like a real complete fighter, like a guy like Mighty Mouse, like a guy like yeah. Mighty Mouse is the top of the heap. Trained by Matt, Matt Hume, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And he can do everything. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a wrestler, it doesn't matter if you're a kickboxer, you're fucked. You're fucked everywhere with yeah. that guy. Yeah. And it's because he's got this just incredibly well-rounded skill sets. And yeah. I think... The days of the specialists, I think, are still they're still kind of here. There's I'm still surprised a few that guys. that's still the case. Yeah, there's a few guys that can still pull it off, but the guys that can pull it off are like the Damian Mayas right. or the Wonder Boys. Yeah, like Wonder Boys, just such an elite striker that is, if he can keep the fight standing, he can kind of work a lot of guys. And because so many guys have not done karate and things like that, they, right. he can, he's he's like a. A Rubik's Cube they can't figure out. Yeah. Right? Well, he's long in that weird sideways stance with that front leg. Yeah. Those guys who have a good front leg, like that karate style, point fighting style, right. that they're used to blitzing in with that good front leg. Yeah. Very hard to gauge that distance. Yeah. So different. Yeah. I think Woodley did the best job of anybody in, in fighting him. And I think that's like a roadmap for it because... Yeah. Like, people booed Woodley and gave Woodley a lot of shit. But look, Woodley's the one who hurt him in both yeah. fights. Right. And that, that's the way you got to fight that guy. You can't just charge after that guy. You and the criticisms countered. of Woodley, in my mind, I think, you know, look, it's a two-man dance, right? right? Woodley kept his title. Yeah. Ultimately, that's all that matters. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if I'm the champ, I'm just trying to keep my title. I'm doing enough to win. I'm not there to be the most exciting fight. That was my mentality because I knew... Once you get, because I fought totally different before I got to the UFC, I was just a psychopath and go out and just go 100 miles an hour until the guy was done. Right. But once you get in the UFC, then it's 
okay, we can cut you if you lose. Right. Like, right. Okay, now I got to change the way I fight. Well, there's also the win bonus. Right. I mean, especially now. Did they have the win bonus oh, back yeah. then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that to me is a real issue. Mm -hmm. I think a guy should be paid what they get paid. Right. I think if you you have a contract, the contract be for X amount of money. If you have points on the pay per view, that's on top of that. But the idea that your win or loss could be in the hands of what we have deemed completely incompetent judges. I see it every week. Every week. It's it is, I mean, and you do a lot of commentary yourself in, yeah. in these smaller shows. I'd imagine sometimes yeah. it's even worse. I've, I mean, we've gotten in trouble to the point where we had people come to us and go, "Look, you, the promoters at different organ from different organizations, when there was really, really bad decisions, you know, when I was working with Michael Chavello, especially, we were brutal yeah. on the athletic commissions, and we'd hear about it and go." You guys need to back back off. I've heard it too. You I've heard are, it from athletic commissions too. But right. I'd say go fuck yourself. Yeah. There's guys in there that are fighting for their life. They literally train for months and months. And some point, someone who literally doesn't even understand martial arts is giving these right. guys a decision, a loss or a yeah. win. Yeah. And that's 50% of their money. I and mean, that's I, crazy. I remember the first time I witnessed it as far as a coach when my IFL team was fighting in Texas. We were fighting, I think, Boss's team. And I looked at the judges, and all of them, one of them had a, a, a bouffant hairdo, an old lady, <laughs> and then two old guys with white hair. And right. I, I went back to the locker room, and I go, guys, you can't let this go to the judges. They're like one foot in the grave and the other on a, on a banana peel. They know nothing about what they're watching. Like, we are in deep shit if, if we can't do it. Well, it's, I think boxing is a very complicated art, and I think it's a very difficult thing to, to score, but it's way more easy to score yeah. than martial arts. Are. Absolutely. There's yeah. so much going on. When a fight goes to the ground, I mean, I have a friend who's a judge who literally said to me in the middle of a fight, one of the female judges, or referees rather, uh, judges, one of the female judges turned to him and go, what is he doing? Mm -hmm. Like, what is he doing? Yeah. The guy was going for a Kimura. What is he doing? Yeah. What Ad is he doing? Adelaide, what, what is are it? you Ad doing? Adelaide Bird, right? Yeah. We've we've heard um, you you talked about her during one of the UFCs, yeah, me and, right? Uh, me and Cormier yeah, were joking yeah. around. Well, it's, it's, it's very hilarious. nice lady, <laughs> very nice lady. Yeah, but like I said, my mom's a really nice lady too. I wouldn't want to want her judging any right. fights. But I said to Adelaide Bird before the Pride in Las Vegas, Lawler was fighting in that one, right? Mm. And I thought I'm just going to ask. And I walked up to her and I go, Can, "Excuse me, I'm new to the sport. Could you tell me what a triangle choke is?" And she looked at me and went, oh. and just walked away. <laughs> walked away. She go, walked away. Yeah, she just looked Maybe at me. Maybe she knew like, who oh, you were. Maybe she's like, "This is a trap." <laughs> Fucking Pat Millich is trying to trap me. Guy here. with cauliflower ears yeah, is asking exactly. me Exactly, that's true. <laughs> New to this sport, mm -hmm. that's hilarious. You probably had a uh, like a transparent grin, like you couldn't hold it back. You know those grins? <laughs> just it's it's sad that this goes. It's on. It's awful. Good. They they suspend fighters constantly, but when are they going to start suspending referees and judges? I, I think agree. I've only seen it one time. I right? agree. I mean, judges and in, 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 in for sure referees as well. But I think that the the real thing that's so disappointing to me is that there's a wealth of martial arts experts out there like there's so right. many yeah there's so many good coaches that would be great judges there's so many great ex-fighters yeah. there's so many people that are just really well versed in martial arts that'd be able to tell and i also think three people is a ridiculously small number 
I think for your, your, like five your, judges. Yeah, like five judges would. I think we would sense. lose a lot of the shitty decisions. That's a good because, idea. Because if it's two and one, and you, like, there's sometimes when you get a split decision, you're like, what in the fuck? Yeah. Like one person saw this completely wrong, and the other two guys got it right. Thank God the other two guys were there. Well, if there's five people, and this happens more than once, you say, okay, well, we got a weak link here. Yeah. Let's get rid of this person. Right. Let's get rid of this person. Yeah. One, one judge it. will have it unanimous one way, and the other judges will have it unanimous the other. Yeah. It's like, like oh, how well, the. It's impossible. Yeah, like, you, they should be. They should be held accountable. There's, someone yeah. should have to sit down with them and say, you "Gotta explain. Like, yeah. what are you seeing? Like, what's, let's watch the round. Yeah. Sit down with me and tell me how you think this guy who's getting the fuck beat out of him is winning." I just, it's criminal, dude. So Some many of kids it is. I've seen screwed out yeah. of. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. It it's is, heartbreaking. and it, it literally is like stealing money from these kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're. I just don't like the win bonus, man. I just think it's a bad. I don't think anybody fights harder for it. See, and I don't even. I don't even necessarily subscribe to, you know, fight of the night and knockout of the night and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think they just bring back the yellow cards, for stalling type stuff. Right, but how Pride did it. Yeah. Right. I think that's a great way to do things. And when Pride did it, what did they take? Ten percent of your purse. I think so, and it, yeah. you know, and they they would end up. I mean, you get DQ'd right. eventually, right? Yes, they pull the red card, and you're done. Right. If it was more than one yellow card, you'd get DQ'd. So they would give you a yellow card if they thought that you were either doing something illegal or if you're not engaging, just stalling, stalling, whatever. Yeah. I mean, in college wrestling, they knew that they had to change things, mm-hmm. right? They had to speed up the action, and they started calling stalling a lot faster in college wrestling, and it changed college wrestling. Guys right. get after it now. You know? you know, my problem with it though is that there's referees that separate fighters when they're working real hard against the cage. Like, and I think, again, it's guys who don't understand. They don't understand how difficult this is. Mm-hmm. When you have one guy is trying to take the other guy down, the other guy is trying to defend, they're landing shots in between, yeah. trying to open up space, and then the referee will say, keep working, I'm going to separate you guys, you don't work. Like, the they're fu- working. What the fuck are you watching? Yeah, they're battling. They're battling. They literally mm-hmm. don't understand the position. Yeah. And that's, that's a giant problem. Think about how many referees have never truly trained. Right. right? A lot. A, a lot. lot of them. And if they did train, it was a long fucking time ago. A lot of the guys going in there with big fat guts and they just How many times have you called fights and all the years you've been calling fights and been saying, He's out, he's out, yeah. he's out, stop the fight, stop the fight, stop the fight. I wonder if you're so close to it that you don't see it as well. That's that's not an excuse. It's not right? an excuse. Because no. you know, you've trained for so many years in martial arts, right? You know when somebody's unconscious from a choke. You know when a joint's getting destroyed. You know yes. you, you've been around it enough. You've trained high level enough where you see it. You know you can see their stomach where it's going in and out really right. hard. You know they're unconscious, right? Right, right. They're, where referees look at somebody and their eyes are wide open. Well, his eyes are open, so he must be conscious. You're a moron. Yeah, you don't understand. Right? Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on um, forcing tap outs? Like if a guy gets his arm broken, like that's a controversial thing. Like like if for, stopping a fight. What do you think about Tim Sylvia and Frank Mir? Yeah. You know, Tim got his forearm That snapped. was a crazy one. Because in that one, I kind of agree with her because it wasn't an elbow. It was the middle of the arm. Right. Both forearm bones went at yeah. the same time. and So I didn't see that angle, right? right. Tim's back was to us in the corner. Right. And Herb stops it. And, I, and Tim gets up and he's like, what the? F-? You know, doing right. a great acting job. Yeah. Right. Tim, you know, for whatever reason, was able to pull that off. I mean, that's not a pleasant feeling, obviously, having your, your arm snap in half. Right. And he, Tim gets up and he's like yelling at Herb. I go in. I start yelling at Herb, and Herb's like, "Pat, I swear to God, his arm is broken." He's please. And then I see the replay on the big screen. And I yeah. go, "All right, Herb." All right. Well, I remember on. the crowd was booing, and then we played the replay back, and I'm like, "Watch it, watch it right here, snap!" Crunch. And you hear everybody go, "Oh!" 
Yeah. And then I told Tim, I go, wave to the crowd when we walk out of the cage with your broken arm. So Tim goes like <laughs> Jesus this. And then we got back. We got backstage when the doctor looked at it, and, and I go, "How bad is it?" And he goes, "Oh, it fucking hurts. This, this hurts. Yeah, yeah, it was bad." So that the was doctor a, that did the doctor that there? yeah the doctor that did it was a good good friend of mine, orthopedic guy, who I trained for many years. He was a bull rider at one time. And then became an orthopedic surgeon, <laughs> and then trained with me in kickboxing. Right, tough wow. guy, tough, tough, tough dude from Texas. I would imagine. And he goes, "I've never had to order plates for a tibia bone to replace to to put somebody's forearm bones back together." He goes, "They're as big as the normal human's tibia." Oh yeah, well, Tim's a giant. His, yeah, his, yeah, his bones were massive. He goes, "They don't even make." I had to use tibia plates. Wow. Yeah. Did that heal one hundred percent? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a long time, though, right? Like yeah, he, yeah, he really yeah, struggled yeah. with that. Right. That was. I remember him saying thank you to Herb Dean for saving his career. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, if he let him go on and that, that thing got thrashed. hanging down here Or and especially else. if it goes, once it breaks through the skin, right. that becomes a giant issue for infections. Absolutely. And all kinds of, here it is right here. Jamie pulled it up. Frank Mir, that motherfucker has broken more arms. They're not showing it right here? Oh, it's just not It was right angle. on the cup. Here's right? the replay. Yeah. Right that's there. a that's another thing about metal cups. That's a weird little loop. Oh, here it is. That's a weird angle too. Look at that. Crunch. Ah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. daddy. That's, that's a weird angle. That was ugly. That was ugly. Those metal cups, man. That's a weird uh, still loophole. Like you could still wear those those tie cups. Those I steel think you cups. should be able to. But you're right? kicking metal, and it's also a crazy fulcrum. If you got a guy on an arm bar, that's you got a fucking metal rod there. I like it though. I like I'm it. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing with what the, the the old timers that taught me in K1 and Muay Thai was, you take those metal cups and you take sheet metal screws from the inside oh, out, Jesus. and you screw this, put the sheet metal screws through, and then back them back out so there's raised edges everywhere on it, right? right? So you wear that. So if if they knee you or kick you in the groin, it shreds their meat up on their knee or their foot. Right. right. So that's what the old TIE fighters would do is that's the way they would do their cups. So that's how I started doing it. <laughs> so if they're going to low blow me, they're going to shred their freaking leg up. <laughs> the problem with that is it also works if you get a guy and you mount him and you drive that thing into his sternum. Then you've got like barbs. You're yeah. shoving into his sternum. That seems like a weapon. <laughs> seems a little bit. Seems a little bit like a little cheating. We, uh, yeah. I, there was a couple other guys that did that back in the day, especially the Chicago circuit. Because I was fighting kickboxing in Chicago a lot. Was Chicago like a rougher circuit, dude? It was. Uh, they would do K1 rules Muay Thai, and then I started in the PKC style originally, and I hated it because it was, you know, the light tree, like the dragsters. The old PKC uh -huh. was you get one kick in, one light lights. Oh and you had to, yeah. You had PKC have, is that like PKA? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was all same the same kind stuff, of shit, like right? above the waist kickboxing. Yeah, with yeah. the with the silk pants and right, all the bullshit. Those are great. Oh, the God, boots, those foam boots on. So when I started, I wasn't <laughs> flexible, right? I was a wrestler, right. you know, who had some boxing experience. And the reason they did that was so boxers wouldn't come in and destroy everybody. Right. 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 So the karate guys could survive and do pretty well. Yeah. So the just having to get the allotted eight kicks per round, I hated it because it was all kick above the waist. I wasn't that flexible. I was. Pretty shitty at kicks when I when I first started, right? So it was just a waste of time. And then I I ran into the Muay Thai thing and the K one rules fights, and I went, "This is my thing. I can kick him in the legs." Thank yeah. God. Well, I remember the first time I got kicked in the leg. I was like, "Oh, this is such a game changer." Because in Taekwondo, it was like yeah. it was illegal. 
It was illegal to kick below the waist, right. and it was legal to punch in the face. Yeah. So it was great for learning dexterity of the legs, but the, the moment I started training with Thai guys, yeah. and I got kicked once, just once, I went, oh, <laughs> this, you should do this. This should be the thing. I was it's like, so oh painful. my God. It's so painful. It, well, it's weird. It's yeah. not just painful. It's like your leg goes dead. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's this weird feeling. You're like, oh, Christ. <laughs> It's so effective. Yeah. And also that you could do it from such a close range. Right. You know? They can be in a clinch and blast somebody yeah. in the leg and hurt yeah. them, right? So I, the worst experience of my life sparring was Arthur Mariana Souza. He was the guy in the old IVCs in Brazil that laid Vanderlei Silva's eye wide open and all the meat was hanging down past his eye. That was Arthur Mariana Souza. And he I was remember a that guy. Great striker, trained in Holland for a lot of years, and he would come up with Omri Batesh and live with me when Batesh was the, the elite guy on the planet grappling, right? So we had the best of both worlds. We had a wicked striker and, and one of the best grapplers in the world, and he'd come up and we'd just train hard, right, for six, eight weeks at a time. And Arthur started low-kicking the shit out of everybody in my gym. We weren't great Muay Thai guys at that time. But it, the experience of watching... He, he started, that's the thing, he started getting to the back leg, right? He, oh, yeah. he could throw the cross and step outside and come back and, and just tap you in the same spot over and over on your back leg. And you're always taking your weight off that leg, off the cross. Right. Your weight goes on it, then it comes back off of it as you're stepping right when the kick hits. So it's like jello, your quad's <laughs> jello. And just cut right to the femur bone every time. <sighs> and he, he kicked me like three times in a row in the exact same spot. And I, I winced and went, duh, duh. <laughs> and he goes, Patch, you know, with a Brazilian accent. He's like, Patch, I don't, I don't kick you in that leg anymore. And I go, no, dude, I need to learn the hard way. I need to learn the hard way. So he's like, all right, cross, <laughs> low kick, ah! <laughs> fall down, balling. He had Jens Pulver jumping like this, like a monkey. Uh, he was so afraid of his low kicks. And then you're fucked for days afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to get kicked there for funky when you try to train, you're yeah. all jacked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing skill that the the Thais really figured out how to do it right. I mean, Kyokushin obviously had it. A lot of martial yeah. arts had it, but man, the Thais figured it out. Yeah, they yeah. really. It's cr kind of crazy when you think about this one small island. It's yeah. one small country, right? And they, because of gambling and because they had all those fights and. They just figured out a totally different method of training, a totally different method of fighting. Yeah, yeah. Pretty impressive. When you think about the history of, of Thai fighting between the, the Laotians and the Thais during times of peace, the, the, the soldiers would fight each other and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Just a bunch of scary people, and they're the nicest people in the world. The nicest people. You couldn't yeah. meet any nicer people who would completely wreck you. It's so weird because, like, when you meet Thais, especially even Thai fighters, they're so friendly. Yeah. They're so friendly and humble and warm. And then when you watch them fight, like, Jesus. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. You my, know? So my, my Muay Thai coach, a guy named Long Longley, his last name was not Longley. It was a lot longer than that. But he was a stadium <laughs> champ. He lived in Peoria, Illinois, in the ghetto. And he had a little shitty basement with type with like uh, uh, banana bags and all that sort of stuff and I found him out of sheer luck somebody said there's this guy in Peoria that was a stadium champion he's the guy so I went to see him and he taught me how to clinch do clinch work and he was 140 pounds maybe and he put you in the clinch all the years of wrestling and everything else didn't matter I mean I felt like a, a a dog in a lake with a raccoon hanging on my head. That's a lot of th me. one thing that people don't realize that are, aren't <clears throat> real fans of the sport is that Muay Thai is a lot about grappling. Yeah. It's a lot about that clinch work. And that's one of the things that I really like Lion Fight above a, a lot of the other kickboxing organizations is they let those guys work in the clinch yeah. and, and elbows in the clinch. It's, a, it's, a, it's Again, like we were saying about headbutts, 
these elements are very effective. Yeah. So why remove them? It's the what's tolerable to the politicians and the public and all Bare the other garbage, knuckle, right? knuckle, clinch, everything should be there, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think everything should be there. I think the real issue is the, the cage. The real issue is the cage, in my opinion, because the cage presents this artificial barrier. Right. I mean, I've been, I'm beating a dead horse here because I've been saying they should fight on basketball courts. I'm like, if you can have a basketball game in a basketball court, why can't you have a fight on a basketball court? It would certainly serve a striker, court? right? Fuck yeah. The wrestlers yeah. are able to get you against a cage, yank your legs yeah. out from underneath you, beat the shit out of you. It is, it is an advantage for the wrestlers. But it's also an advantage for the wrestlers in that <laughs> a guy's not going to be able to put his back up against the cage and get back up again. True. You know, if a While good walking. grappler has you down in the center, you're going to have to earn that stand up. Yeah. You're going to have to yeah. actually either reverse the position or figure out a real escape because so many guys are so good at wall walking yeah. and there's so many and they're also good at defending a submission by keeping one side pressed up against the cage and can't take their back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Right. i think that it's an artificial environment like the cage and it's also it's hard to see like if you're in the audience yeah. i mean it's it's actually better sometimes to be home watching i cage like the, fights. i like the boxing rings for fights i mean the, they go through the ropes now and then whatever right, right? But it's a lot better for people at home watching and for the live crowd. There's just yeah. not that cage barrier, that focus problem yeah, for I the agree. eyes and cameras, right? I agree. I think Bellator actually nailed it with their kickboxing ring because they put this big circle around it so you can't fall through. Like Remember when Bernard Hopkins fought Joe Smith right. in his last fight? He went through the ropes and mm -hmm. landed on his fucking head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a terrible way for a legend to, to go out. Yeah. Like to, this is, it's the rope, ropes were loose and he gets clipped while he was already going down. He just goes right through the yeah, hole. Yeah, that's ridiculous that he could fall four feet and and land on his fucking head like that. Was, that was that was the fight where Bernard was talking tons of shit before the fight, right? Was he talking a lot of shit? Yeah, he was talking a lot of shit. Well, it was his last fight, you know, yeah. and probably realized. I mean, Ber Bernard Hopkins was getting his ass kicked by Antoine Eccles, who trained at Pena's boxing gym in Iowa, where I trained. Right? Mm -hmm. Antoine was scary, dude. He was scary. He got he got side sidetracked and derailed by horrible management. They they really screwed his his career up, but. He was the scariest boxer that I have ever seen and been in the gym with. I mean, that guy would, he's looking like he's punching at half speed and just crushing people with 16 ounce sparring gloves on. Wow. Just destroying people. Yeah, I remember Antoine. Antoine went down to, <clears throat> it was South America, Ecuador, or wherever the hell it was. That was when uh, Norris was fighting Simon Brown. Terry? Uh, Terry, Terry Norris. Terry Norris or. The, the the smaller one, right? Yeah, Terry. Yeah, Terry. yeah. Uh, Michael Nunn was defending his title there. Oh wow! And Antoine Eccles got on the card because Michael Nunn was the pound for pound best fighter in the world. He was out of Davenport, Iowa, also where I live. Right. So they were doing a bunch of sparring. They were training down there, getting used to the altitude. And Antoine walked into the gym and he started sparring with three time world champions and beating the shit out of all of them. And they go, "Dude, you need to back off. You need to you need to stop this." And it's a month out from the fight. He doesn't right. care. He's knocking the shit out of all these three-time world champs. And they go, "You and basically what Antoine said to all of them was, "If you guys can't handle it, stay out of my ring. Like I, I don't care who you are or what your titles are. I'm going to wreck you. So, toughen up. I I own the ring now." Right? That's how good he was. <laughs> what do you think about that kind of sparring though? I think it's great. Do you think it's great to just go to war? I just, you know, you can't, you know, there has to be a limit, obviously, because the ties don't do it like that at all. Well, here's the thing, though. That's because the low they kicks, the lot. knees, the elbows, all that sort of stuff. But it's also because they fight a lot, right? Yeah, they're fighting every week. Yeah, you know, so that that's that's your sparring. But you know, the thing is, you can't. And I say it a million times. I've said it for years. You can't become a race car driver by going down the highway at 55. 
Mm. You just don't have the reaction time. You're not used to that high speed, that high endurance, everything else that goes on. You have to get used to that, and everything slows down eventually, right? right? With experience and time, things slow down for you. I can remember when I first started fighting kickboxing, and everything was like a tunnel this big. Mm-hmm. And all I could hear was me breathing. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Just Didn't from hear nerves anything and else. adrenaline. But then later on in my career, you know, you'd see punches come at you, and you'd move this slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was actually... Right. You know what I mean? So it just it happens with time, and you've experienced that with everything you've done, right? Yeah, you with, just with become martial arts. more accustomed to it, and then you become more relaxed. But I wonder, like, is there a way to keep the speed but at least take something off the shots? Or well, do you think- that, that's the thing is where you put the shin pads on, the headgear, the 16-ounce gloves, you go mm-hmm. at high speed, you go hard, you hit takedowns hard, all that sort of stuff, you know, a couple times a week. But, you, you know, you can't take that kind of punishment constantly. But, right. you know, mornings would be conditioning, strength stuff, technique, all that sort of stuff. Then nighttime was, you know, more high speed, hard takedowns. And as a coach, I had to look and go, all right, tonight's takedowns. But if I saw people getting tired, fatigued, and sloppy, I knew an injury was about to happen. Right. Okay, let's go to the ground now, get in the guard, let's go from there, mm-hmm. let's do, you know, do some ground and pound drills, this and that. Right. So I think, you know, it was, it, it, it's important to go high speed until you start seeing mistakes happen because of sloppiness, fatigue. That's when people get hurt. Then you got to, you know, pull the reins back on everybody. When you were running your gym, the Militich Fighting Systems was the gym. I mean, you guys were the kings. You got to think about who came out of your gym: Matt Hughes, Robbie Lawler. I mean, Jens Pulver, Tim Sylvia, and then a host of other killers that people yeah. just forgot. But, you know, we had a lot of people, obviously, that would come and train with us: Rich Franklin, um, Dave Manet, who was eighty-five pound champ for a while. He was, he was one of the best martial artists I've ever seen. People don't even know about him. The guy was incredible. Trained with Greg Nelson for a good portion of his career, obviously. But I think we had 92 people made it to televised careers, and I think 30 or so made it to the UFC. That's pretty impressive. So it's, you know, when I added it all up, somebody asked me to do that, and I added it all up, and I went through all the the televised cards that I remembered. It was, I think, 92 people. And I thought, you know, that it's pretty impressive. We had a lot of killers. We had a lot of killers. Yeah, and you also were the first big super gym. Right. Like this, you were the first big American gym that was producing like world champions. Besides like, like the Lions Den, I guess. Well, that's you true. Know. The Lions Den too. Yeah, I guess they were the first. We had a good so you we, were you guys we had were a good all rivalry in the mix. with them. Yeah. Though. We had a good that's rivalry. That's true. Well, the Lions Den didn't produce as many world champions. We really ba- basically had Frank and Ken and and who else came out of the Trey Telegman. Yeah. Uh, Guy like, Metzger. Guy Metzger was a world champion. Yeah. 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 Metzger uh, also had that kickboxing background right. too. You know, he yep. had, he had more of an American style kickboxing background too. Yeah, and the wrestling he had wrestled yeah. before and stuff, so that helped him. He had some great fights in Pride too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Metzger was super legit. He's a smart guy too. You know, Metzger is an interesting fellow. When you hear him talk about fighting and talk about his career, he's very open and honest about it. And he's you know? into the holistic health now. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 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 pretty wise to that. And I tell you what. If you if you talk to him long enough, he'll have you sold on some products. He will. He'll, he'll <laughs> Smart have you sold. dude. Yeah. But you know, he's a guy that uh, he suffered through uh, that Vioxx shit. You right. know that Vioxx stuff that people were taking for heart attacks and all that. He had a stroke. Right. He had a stroke through Vioxx. Yeah. They yeah. pulled that shit off the market. Yeah. And when people were taking it, a lot of people were taking getting strokes, and I, I think someone Vioxx and Celebrex. Was Celebrex another one? Celebrex was bad too. Yeah. There's a lot of weird drugs that people were taking for arthritis. That I guess it was like a blood thinner, right? Is that a what lot, the idea? A lot, yeah, and it was a lot of a lot of professional athletes mm-hmm. who were suffering from inflammation and pain and getting beat up and stuff yeah. were all taking it, and it was yeah, it was wrecking people. 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to your gym. Like when you guys were doing it, you guys were kind of creating the roadmap. I mean, there wasn't really a lot. I mean, the lines then had their crazy, um, the, the, the initiation that they, that they would do. Right. Where they would run you through this insane gauntlet yeah. that was similar to what I guess Ken had to go through in Japan. Right. So Ken had put that together. They had, you know, they had their own little methods as well. I shouldn't say little methods. They had their own. <laughs> they were very big and very crazy. Yeah. But you guys, like, there wasn't, there wasn't, like, now you have ATT, you have TriStar, you have all these different gyms you could sort of model after. You know, right. you got Rufus's camp. There's yeah. all these different places we could say, oh, all these elite fighters come out of here. How are they doing it? Oh, I've trained with these guys. I know their methods. Yeah. Here's what they do for strength and conditioning. Here's how they take, uh, here's how they do their recovery work. Yeah. You guys were basically at the front of the line. There was nobody back there f for you to look at. Right. Well, I what I was lucky enough to be, like I said, I wasn't a world-class wrestler. I was a good wrestler. I beat some very good wrestlers, but I was not by any means even remotely world-class, right? I had some boxing experience. I'd been around some great boxers, so I at least had that to start with. But I recognized, you know, I, I want to be I want to I want to be good enough to spar 12 rounds with a world-class boxer and hang, you know, hang. And go an hour straight with a, a world-class BJJ black belt, right. and and go back and forth with them and battle tooth and nail, to be able to hang in a you know the Iowa wrestling room during the summer with the Hawk Club guys who are absolute beasts and friggin' throw you around and bounce you off walls, and and spar with good good kickboxers and be able to do all that stuff and then understand how to how to put it all together, and I think that that you know at least enabled me to explain grappling and wrestling to a striker from a striker standpoint and vice versa. You know what I mean? Right. So that was understanding angles from a striking standpoint, from a wrestling standpoint, and being able to explain it and understand people. And then you got to read people, you know, their their personality, right? right. you got to coach everybody different. You can't coach everybody the same way because some people want to get screamed at and some people want to pat on the back and a hug. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just you got to read people differently. Personalities yeah. are a big deal. When you were putting together, when you were training fighters, you first you started off, when you first started doing it, you were still fighting. And you still had a couple of fights along the way. Right. But when you were putting together, like, training, say if you were training a fighter for a big fight in the UFC, how did you put together their camp? Did you leave it up to them in some ways? Did you just have them attend regular group training sessions? Did you give them individualized attention? I would, you know, I would give them individual um, attention definitely definitely I had to kind of figure out everybody's body was different how to find that that balance between aerobic and anaerobic endurance you know some people needed more of one or the other um, and then they'd come to team training and everybody you know you got 40 guys in the room who are all a bunch of killers and you just get new guys and everybody was pretty good about knowing this guy's getting ready for a fight don't fucking hurt him you know right, that's right. that's really important right you know so so we were pretty good about as a group looking out for somebody but pushing them to their limit constantly or double teaming them constantly you know every minute a new guy jumping in on them type mm -hmm. stuff and doing that sort of you know so it was um and obviously you know helping a guy like hughes who wasn't the best striker we got to do what we can to get him better at it you know what i mean or a striker who can't stop a takedown we got to figure out how to help this guy i got to put him with a bunch of wrestlers and just have him constantly sprawling, 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 and guys would alternate and shoot and shoot and shoot and make them work it, work it, work it. You know, that was the, it was just different for each guy, I guess.
So. Now, did you did you have anything specific that you would do in between camps? Like, say, if you had a guy like Hughes, and you say, like, he, he wins his fight, now he has some time off. Would you start working with him on specific things? Like, you would you have a program? You'd say, like, Matt, we really got to tighten up. You know, your stand up defense, or yeah, we if they work were, on... you know, if they were healthy and stuff like that, absolutely. You know, there's there was just guys that. It's so hard for people to be well-rounded. It really is, especially yeah. when you're that good at one thing. You know, yeah. Hughes was such a powerful wrestler that, and, and so good on the ground that it was, you know, it, it was a challenge. So we had to definitely work, you know, extra with that. Well, Matt was the first guy who was a really great wrestler who also was outstanding at submissions. Right, right. He, was, he really changed the game because, yeah. like, like, when he hit that far side arm bar on George St. Pierre, that is a very technical move. Right. And to have a powerhouse wrestler hit that in a world title fight, yeah. it's like that, to me, I think Matt doesn't get enough credit. Maybe see, just because, you know, time passes and you start looking at George St. Pierre, you start looking yeah. at all, all these other guys, Tyron Woodley's the champ now, yeah. and you sort of just forget, like, that Matt was the blueprint. This is what happens when a really strong, powerful wrestler learns and absorbs out, yeah. the ground, right? That's and, a scary dude. Yeah. That's that's where you go, you're not a BJJ guy. You're a you're a catches catch can wrestler. Right. You know, you understand how to destroy somebody, control position, beat them up, and hit, you know, power submissions, finesse submissions, all all that different stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's and when Hughes was in his prime, I remember when he first I refereed his second fight and he destroyed some poor Brazilian. And the guy was a really good, legit black belt. And Hughes beat him half to death. And it was in Chicago. I refereed it. And I walked up to him and I go, dude, you ever come to Iowa, I know I'll make you a world champ. There's just no doubt in my mind. That was the only guy I ever said that to. The only guy I ever recruited, to be honest with you, for the most part. So Hughes shows up. He drives three and a half hours from Hillsboro, Illinois. I've got bronchitis at the time, which made it even worse. And he goes... Here I am. Um, let's let's get this workout in, right? So we wrestled and grappled, you know, takedowns to submissions, everything else. And about thirty minutes into it, I can't breathe. And this guy is a monster. I've had him in fifty submissions, and he's shaken out of all of them, literally, just like bounced me off walls. He's so fucking strong, I couldn't believe it. And I was I was a strong guy. I mean, at the time, I was probably benching three sixty five, could dunk a basketball, and run a four four forty. So I was not a slouch athlete when I was in my prime. And I couldn't believe this guy. I had never experienced somebody my size being this strong in my life. That farmer strength shit is real. It is real. And I grew up (laughs) having to wrestle farmers, trust me. The Royce Algers and all those psychopaths, right? But I I said to him, I go, hold on, man. I go, I can't breathe. I got bronchitis. And he goes, fuck you. He goes, I don't care what you got. I drove three and a half hours. We're working out. And he grabbed me. And fucking train doubled me onto my back all the way across the room, slams me. I was like, all right, we're here. Let's get it on. So I got him in one guillotine. I lifted him off his feet. I ran him backwards and ran him as hard as I could ass first into the wall. I mean, I was was trying to kill him. I was so pissed because he was just a freak. And he went limp. He went unconscious for a second. So I let go of it. He slid down the wall, hit his knees, woke back up, and train doubled me again onto my back. And we're back at it. (laughs) Right? And so we get done we get done with this hour something workout of just go, go, go. And I look at him and I go, dude, what are you on? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, what are you taking? Are you on some fucking steroids or what? And he goes, and he got pissed. And he goes, don't ever accuse me of that again. He goes, fuck you. He goes, don't ever say that again. Never. That was like the one thing where if somebody said anything like that, he was so offended because he was just a farm boy. His brother was frigging just as strong, if not right. stronger. 
Yeah, his brother was a gorilla too, mm -hmm. and his brother fought in the UFC once, right? Yeah, and walking back to the locker room after that fight, his brother Mark goes, "That wasn't really all I, I expected. I, <laughs> I really, I, it was fun, but I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't enjoy that that much." Wow! And he killed the guy. He beat the shit out of it. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, even identical twins, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily think identically. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Matt was a he was a real freak and a real important figure in the history of MMA you yeah. know like because you, know, you got to think 1993 it all starts and then from then on it's been sort of a, this learning experience trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work yeah. and in my opinion Matt is one of the big pieces to that puzzle yeah. because we had had some powerful wrestlers of course you had Coleman and so many other guys and they were basically all about ground and pound yeah I mean the only time Coleman got a submission in the UFC was when he he fucking headlocked Dan Severin or can opener somebody yeah. or well, whatever he got, did you yeah, take the leg in the head, take yeah. the leg in the head, go, Did or no, yeah, that? a headlock and you then squeeze him like that. Yeah. yeah, it was like a judo it's scarf It's a compressor, hold. a compressor, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, nobody wants to get stuck in that with that fucking gorilla back no. then. He was ungodly strong when I trained him for uh, the Pride Grand Prix, right? Yeah. He called me up and he goes, I want to come there and train with you. And he had lost two or three fights in a row at that point, so he was kind of cannon fodder put into that Pride Grand Prix. He was just a name at that point. And I go, all right. Come, you come here. You got to do everything I tell you to do. We're gonna, we're gonna train hard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna torture you. And he's like, that's fine. And he, he wanted to come there. I think because I had so many scary dudes at the time, like Steve Rusk, who wasn't even a fighter, could kill every fighter I've ever trained. I mean, he'd just walk in the room, take off his fatigues from hunting, beat the shit out of everybody in the room, and then go back out hunting or fishing. That's just <laughs> that's that was Steve Rusk. And he, he was, didn't fight. He fought four times and just goes, you know what, I. I'm not I'm I'm not into it, but I'll come into the gym and help everybody get ready. He he helped me coach my IFL team, ah. but he was the guy that after I fought Lindland when I got kicked out of my weight division when the UFC goes you got to move up weight division I went. Why they tell you you have to move up? They go you've trained yourself out of a spot. You have uh, Jason Black, Rob Lawler, and Matt Hughes all at 170. They're all ranked I think in the at the time top 10 in the world, and they go. And I had done my comeback fight after losing the title to Carlos, knocked out Shoney Carter. So in my contract, it said that I had an automatic rematch clause, right? And they go, no, not happening. You're moving up to 185. And I go, I'm not big enough for 185, right? So, but I, I realized at that point, business-wise, how easily I could be discarded, right? Mm. And it kind of it kind of ruined me, to be honest with you, mentally. It just I was like, yeah, I didn't even want to do this. But neither here nor there, Linlin, after we fought, he came to my gym to train for one of his fights. And <laughs> Steve Rusk is there that day. And Rusk was a great Greco guy. And now it's the Olympic silver medalist Greco guy going against a guy that's an unknown. And Rusk ragdolls him. We're doing winner stays on the mat. And Linlin gets taken down. And Linlin won't leave the mat. You can't believe he's getting taken down by a no-name, right? So Rusk does it to him again, does it to him again, does it to him again. And finally the whole team goes, Linlin, get off the mat, dude. Get the fuck off wow. the mat. Linlin comes over and sits next to me and goes, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> I go, that's Steve Rusk. He's just, he's Steve. He destroys everybody. There's a lot of those guys in gyms out there that don't want to fight with their super high level. Donaher was telling me about some guys that he has in his gym yeah. that wreck some of his best top guys that go in competition. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Rusk was a guy who he grabbed... It was Dave Strasser who fought in the UFC for a while. Dave was a tough guy. Dave was very tough. But Russ grabbed the – he was in uh, Dave's guard, and he grabbed his foot and his shin bone and went like this and was going to just break his foot off. Right? That's how strong this guy was. 
And Strasser taps out and gets up and looking at him like, there's no way I'm ever grappling with you again. He goes, stay away from me. I don't want any part of you ever again. And uh, Nick Ackerman, who was a national champion wrestler, he won the Hodge Trophy. The same year Cale Sanderson won it. They, they were uh, co-recipients of it. Nat Ackerman was the guy who was a national champ who had his legs were gone from his knees down. And Ackerman was almost as tall as me on his knees. That was another guy in our gym that was so strong that he would just he could just crush your ribs by squeezing you. Just massive, massive power. It makes you wonder, like, what would it be like to, to grapple Corellin when he was in his prime? Because even the great grapplers would grapple him and go, what in the fuck is that all about? He would, yeah, he was gut-wrenching people and snapping spines. Yeah, right? literally snapping spines. Like, when guys would flatten out, when you'd see a 290-pound man panic, like lay down flat <laughs> on his stomach and try to flatten out and do everything they can to keep from getting launched, and he would pick them up like a half-empty sack of potatoes and yeah. fucking slam them. Yeah. He Scary just human go, being. Jesus. You ever see his parents? No. Tiny little people. Really? Yeah. They called them the experiment. Were they gym, gymnasts? One was a gymnast or something, and the other one know. was a little power lifter or something? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but they were like 5'5". Five, five. Right. And, you know, you see him. He was just this fucking giant panther. He really was like a panther. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. he, didn't, he didn't even move like a big guy. He no. moved like a small guy. Yeah. And, yeah. and he was a giant. I think that... You know, there was probably some some sort of beating oh, the system yeah. with that. Oh, right? what beating the system? That was a part of the system. That fucking guy was on everything, yeah. 100%. I mean, you look at his face. His forehead came forward, and yeah. everything just looked like... Massive amounts of growth and everything. all kinds of stuff, They right? probably had him on growth when he was a little baby. I mean, they probably just shot him up with growth from the, the time he was little. That's scary, isn't it? It's fucking terrifying. But look, what they're doing right now in China, there he is. There's Corellin. In his prime. <laughs> Picking guys, up a massive this, man. Massive man. This guy's battling, too. Look at this. Rawr, boom! <laughs> I mean, th that guy, that giant dude on the bottom, probably never had anybody ragged on like that before. No. And it was also, like, the way he would work out. When you see, like, some of the shit that he would do, like some of his kettlebell workouts and yeah. uh, shield casts that he would do with club bells and, and steel plates and shit. He was all about movement. Yeah, circular mo yeah. circular motions, like. Mm -hmm. So your gym, having all that true functional fit, like to see Indian clubs in your gym, I went, all right, he gets it. Yeah. Like he really gets it. Indian clubs, I collect all the old ones. Oh, really? Old like antique wood Sheik? ones. And Iron Sheik the huge wood those? ones, right? Yeah. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, a guy named Ed Thomas taught me about true functional fitness long before any of this CrossFit crap and all this stuff came oh, out, wow. right? So Ed Thomas, Dr. Ed Thomas, and I didn't know he was a doctor. He just showed up at my gym one day. He walks in, a little unassuming dude, and he goes, hey, he goes, Pat, he goes, I'm Ed Thomas. He goes, do you have time for me to teach you some stuff? And I went, sure, you know, whatever. It was the middle of the day. Nothing was going on. So he brings in Indian clubs, kettlebells, old med medicine balls, old leather stuff. And I, at the time, never seen any of this stuff. I didn't know anything about it. Well, he was raised in the Turner Halls in Davenport, Iowa. And that's where he learned functional fitness. And the Turner Halls were brought by the Germans here because the, the Germans used Turner Halls back in Germany to train a generation to become warriors to protect the nation. And that's where that mentality came from. So everything they did was cargo nets, pommel horses, Indian clubs. Uh, heavy kettlebells, all kinds of crazy, just functional fitness stuff. So they would climb cargo nets? Yeah, serpentine inside mm -hmm. of them. Uh, they would swing the cargo nets, and the kids would serpentine in and out of them as it was swinging. All oh, kinds wow. of crazy stuff, right? Um, definitely the rings. They were doing a lot of the ring stuff and power, you know, being able to do iron crosses, all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. That's the way they raised their kids. And 
So he was, at the time, I think, and still is, one of the first and foremost guys on functional fitness. He was the guy that taught me how to train upside down with gravity boots, doing mm. all kinds of crazy stuff with medicine balls and kettlebells and bands and everything else you could do standing up, you could do upside down. And he rebuilt me at the time. But he came in, taught me for an hour. He said, I'll leave this equipment here with you. You can teach your guys what I taught you, and I'll come back you know, another time. And I was like, yeah. And we were talking for a second. I got on the phone, and I turned around, and he was gone. Well, he's, he was a three times in Vietnam. He was a tunnel rat. He signed up for extra tours. He would go in and kill the Viet Cong, sleep, sleep amongst the bodies, and then go back out and find another tunnel and kill people again. That's what Jesus. he did for three years. Just hardcore guy. But um, the guy that owned Taekwondo Times at, at the time, his kid was training underneath me. And he goes, I heard you met a friend of mine. I go, who's that? He goes, Dr. Ed Thomas. And I go, well, he didn't say he was a doctor, but I could tell he was one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. He goes, yeah, he's, he's a scholar. I mean, this guy's a warrior genius, right? This, he's and he's still, he's still up in Des Moines, Iowa. I haven't talked to him for a few years, but that guy taught me what real fitness was about. Wow. This, what year was this? Dear God, I don't remember. I've been hitting 90s? the head so much. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, Look, 90s. You, you're great for a guy who's been hitting the head as many as you. Well, I never had a concussion. I will say that. Well, you must have. Never had a concussion. Really? No. Nope. Well, what is a concussion? A co concussion is like, will they check your pupils? They're not dilating None correctly? It. None of it. None of it. No concussions at all? No. All that hard sparring? No. Nope. Never. I find that hard to believe. That I never weird. got hit with a shot that I didn't see coming. And I think that's the Ever? difference. Nope. No. Wow. Besides one time in a huge fight where a dude hit me in the side of the head with a brick and I saw it last second and I at least rolled with it. And that didn't give you a concussion. You know, he, I, he, uh, it was a huge, it was hip hop night at the nightclub I was bouncing at. Oh, sounds like fun. And the, and the, <laughs> and, and the Illinois gangbangers and the Iowa gangbangers started oh, going at it. God. And I tried breaking it up and they all attacked me. Right. Oh, Jesus. So that's when I, everybody was wearing, it was wintertime, so I was choking people. A guy got me in a headlock, and I was grabbing people by their coat lapels, and I put my head in between his head and his head, and I'd choke him unconscious. I'd find a new coat, and I was working my way backwards out the front door and finally snuck out of the headlock, put him in a rear choke, went backwards out the door. He went limp. I dropped him, and then as I turned to get out into the street, because there was cops everywhere at that point. There's dogs. There's, it's a snowstorm. Last second, I see this coming at the side of my head, and I duck, and it bounces off my head, and this dude goes, yeah, like I was going to go down. And I turned, and I looked at him and rifled him with the right hand and knocked him out. And then the next thing you know, there's just dogs diving into the crowd. Oh. It, was, it was a good one. That was a fun one. Dogs, that's not good. No. Yeah, they're but not. It, dogs very, work. They work. They work real well. But it's not good because they don't know who the fuck they're biting. They might bite you. They might bite the bad guys. I mean, who the fuck? Dogs don't know who the bouncer is. They, don't they give clear a, a crowd shit. out real quick, though. Fuck yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. Malinois? Is that what oh, they were using? Uh, back then, it was shepherds. Really? It was all German shepherds. Yeah, Malinois hadn't even entered the scene at that time. I have a buddy who trains dogs who doesn't like Malinois. He says they're too bloodthirsty. He says they too won't aggressive. Listen. Yeah, he goes, they don't listen as well. Interesting. He goes, he goes, I can trust a shepherd. Right. He goes, bite, hold, and release. Yeah. He's like, if I sick a Malinois on him, he goes, fuck no. So he goes, also, I don't trust him like as a pet. Right. You know, he wants a dog that is is a real trained bite dog, yeah. but also... Good with the family. Can, yeah, can yeah. hang out with your kids. Right. Well, it's like, I've owned Mastiffs before, right? And Mastiffs... I have a Mastiff. They're, you know, I had Brindle Mastiffs, and I always loved to have males. And I had a stalker for three years who was a psychopath, right? So that was when I got my first Mastiff, King. He was 210 pounds, but he was a Brindle. Scary, looked like a Bengal tiger, right? And he... That, those dogs are so powerful, you know, at that size when they're truly in shape, 
where you can't stop them. And there were people that were using Mastiffs for police work, and they stopped using them because a 210-pound Mastiff on a human being, they can kill them really fast. Yeah. This is not a, this is not a bite dog. This is a dog that can just have a screw go loose and rip somebody's throat out in a heartbeat. They're yeah, just too big and powerful. If the suspect hurts them, if something hurts them and they, they, they think, Get oh, pissed. this is a fight. Right. I'm just going to rip your yeah. fucking head clean off your body. Right. And, and that, not, that Mastiff tested me a couple times Ooh. for alpha position in the house. Oh, no. It was one time a uh, plastic bag in the wind was rolling through the woods in, on my property, and he ran and he grabbed it, and I told him, you know, King, come here, front. And he came up to me, and I put my hand on the plastic bag, and he goes, eh. It's like, all right, here it is. This is, this is test time. So I ripped the bag, and it came out of his mouth, right? And he really got pissed off at me. I was testing him. So at that point, I'm like, well, I can't back down to him now. This, right. this is it. So I put my fist against his teeth that he was showing, and I was going, do it. Do it. Jesus Christ. Do it. And he's like this <laughs> with his teeth going, Arr. I'm going, do it. Do it. And finally, he turned and backed off, and then I pet him, and he was wagging his tail, and I was like, all right. Ooh. That was that was kind of scary. <laughs> Ryan Parsons got in a fist fight with his Mastiff. Really? Yeah, he had a Neapolitan Mastiff in college, and they got in a fist fight. <laughs> he goes, it was a real fight. He goes, I had a fight with my Mastiff. I'm like, maybe, maybe you did. More likely you punched your Mastiff. Because <laughs> if it was a real fight, I wouldn't be talking to you, you right now. You'd be chunks now. Yeah, you'd yeah. be fucking dead. A yeah. Neapolitan? That's a giant fucking dog. They're big, yeah. Yeah. I have a Regency Mastiff. Okay, they're half Mastiff, half half pit bull. Oh wow, he's about a buck forty. That's a beautiful dog. I bet he's a great dog. Yeah. He's old now. He's like twelve. Okay, he's he's had some some years under him. Just socializing really good. Oh, he's a great dog. He's yeah. the best. Like gets my along kids with everybody. Ride him. Gets along with every dog, every good. person. That's good. I got him because his dad was on Fear Factor. His dad was uh, an attack dog on Fear Factor. Oh. Put people in a bite suit and they try to run away. And right. his dad, his dad was also the um, the dog that they modeled. They used him for CGI for the Hulk. Remember when the the original the, one of the Hulk movies with Nick Nolte and Eric Bana? Nick Nolte was the bad guy. He right. was the Hulk's dad, and he. Um, He'd injected Hulk serum into his fucking dogs, and so the, the <laughs> dogs would get to a certain point, and they would, uh, you know, they'd get angry, and they'd fucking roar, and they would Hulk out. Would they turn green? No, they were just big. Okay. They didn't turn okay. green. Yeah, it seems like they should, right? <laughs> Maybe they did. No, I don't think they did. I think they just Look at him. He's, look, he's looking for Jimmy, it. Jimmy, he's yeah, Jamie found it. it. Yeah. Oh, dear God. Look yeah. at that. That's scary. That was like real bad CGI too, boy. When you watch that movie, it's funny because that wasn't that long ago. Right. I think that was only like fifteen years ago. What year was that? If you had to guess, yeah, fifteen years. They've come ago? a long ways with CGI. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. So his dad, uh, my dog Johnny Cash, his dad Curly, was uh, in Fear Factor, and that was literally what he was built like. Wow. But smaller than that, obviously. That's that's when he hulks out. So they took him and sort of exaggerated him. Huh. Basically looked like that. You could find him. Just just Google Regency Mastiff Curly. He was a, a famous stud. He's a fucking oh, wow. ridiculous dog. But the thing about the dog was, when we had him on the set, he would just fucking chill. He was a black dog, so none of those are him. There's probably a lot of dogs named Curly. It's all right. It doesn't matter. But um, 
they, the dog was just so friendly. Yeah. Like, and then when it was time to go, when they put the bite suit on people, it was hilarious because we were using Malmois for a while, yeah. and you get like a big football player type dude who's about two forty. Couldn't bring him down. They can't bring him down because right. they could hold on to it, and they could. That dog's only 60, 70 pounds. You right. throw him around. Yeah. Curly grab a hold of you, and it would be like they got hit by a truck. They would just go <laughs> flying and crash to the ground. And one of the ones that we did was actually my friend Ed's girlfriend was on the show. Yeah. And uh, I knew her before, and I was like, oh Jesus, I felt bad because <laughs> she weighed like a buck ten, and they're putting her in this fucking bite oh, suit. God. And then Curly <laughs> hits her like literally like she got hit by a tree. Like someone took a tree, one of those swinging trees, and and just boom. Did she get she hurt? Goes, she was okay. She she's a tough yeah. kid. How many how many episodes of Fear Factor did you do where you were like, this is horrible to do? To Two. People? One when they had to ride bulls, one when they had a drink come. There's the dog. <laughs> <laughs> See, the dog gets these people just boom, get down, bitch. Like, you're not going nowhere. Oh, nice. But the problem was with these dogs is they bite so hard that if they get a hold of a bone through the suit, they can break a bone. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Anyway, great dogs. You had people drink cum on Fear Yeah, they drink cum. I never saw What was it, like bull It never cum? aired. It was uh, donkey cum. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was um, it got out on TMZ, and then uh, we they played horseshoes, and uh, they had a they had a drink donkey cum and donkey urine, and uh, yeah, it was that's ridiculous. hardcore. It was hardcore. That was there was two episodes where I said don't do it. One of them was riding bulls, and the other one was the donkey cum. People got hurt, right? The riding bulls, they, we got lucky. Yeah, no one got hurt. We got lucky. Wow. Just, just roll the dice. Yeah, because this was the funny. Those fucking stuntmen. I'm sure you worked around stuntmen before, right? Fucking animals. Yeah, they don't give yeah. a shit. Broken bones don't mean anything to them. Right. Those guys are they're animals. They're yeah. just some of the toughest fucking people for sure in all of show business. Right. Yeah. And uh, their attitude was like, eh, they'll be fine. That baby be fine. And so my friend Perry, who's the stunt guy, was like, don't worry about it. Boo, they're stunt dogs. Or they're stunt bulls. Right. I go, they're stunt bulls? Does that fucking bull know he's a stunt bull? Did you have a conversation with that bull? Because he understands that's a bull. That's a bull. They right. were so big. Because we were, I was standing next to the person while they were, they were you know, there's the, the pen and they, they, they sit on top of the bull and you're right there. So I'm yeah. standing right next to him on the platform. And I'm like, don't do it. There's no way you're going to hang on. There's this, no, we, my first year in college wrestling at Sioux Empire up by the South Dakota border, middle of nowhere, we got recruited by a guy that was an All-American at Iowa State, Johnny Johnson, who was the coach up there, right? And myself and three other buddies, Mike Wolf from American Pickers, wrestled with me that year up there, right? And he's actually a tough guy. A lot of people don't realize it. Mike Wolf's actually a really tough dude. Um, but to keep ourselves busy... We would go, all the wrestlers would go, and there was, a, there was fields everywhere next to the college. It was a small junior college in the middle of nowhere, right? So there was this huge Angus bull in the field right by the college. So we would go over there, and the first guy that could grab the bull's head would win the money. We'd put money in the pot, right? So we're running around. The, 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 the farm owner, the farmer pulls up one time in his, his pickup truck, and he goes, what are you idiots doing? We go, we put money in a pot, and the first guy that can grab the bull's head wins, and, you know, that's, that's the game we're playing, right? And he goes, you guys stay off my property, man. Knock this shit off. And then we got to where the sheep would always escape another farm and come on to the lawn of the college. And Mike Wolf and I got in trouble one day. We'd take these, these rams and we'd smack them in the forehead, palm them in the forehead to get them to jump up on their back legs and try and smash us. And then we'd sidestep them and headlock them and throw them and stuff. We, that's, <laughs> that's what we were doing for fun back then. So um, Mike, uh, 
Mike Wolf, one of the ladies that worked in the cafeteria saw us doing it. And she goes, you boys leave those animals alone. Quit, stop doing that, right? That's cruel. And it wasn't hurting them. We were just having the fun. We were bored college kids, right? And uh, I said, yeah, but you should see what Squirrel does to them. And Squirrel was one of the basketball players from East St. Louis who played on the basketball team up there. And we had guys from Miami, south side of Chicago, East St. Louis. You know, just tough ghetto kids who got thrown into this this uh, farm atmosphere. It was totally foreign for them. <laughs> but we, we made the joke, and this was a very religious cafeteria lady. And I said, you should see what Squirrel's doing to him. And the next day we came in for lunch, she was scolding Squirrel about bestiality. And he's looking at me going, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was good times good times man yeah that's a ridiculous thing to do with your time we you, had nothing you, else to do i understand you should find something else to do <laughs> <laughs> you needed somebody some guidance well that's that's the uh haywarden iowa which is right on the south dakota border tiny little town the college was there and one night i went drinking and i got in a fight with a bike gang and they were beating me with pool cues but that's I, you know, whatever it happened, but I had a guy, a biker, was at the urinal, and I walked into the bathroom, and he goes, "Quit dragging your feet, eight man." And I go, "You know, people that mind their business don't get the shit kicked out of them, right?" And he goes, "Bring it." So I crushed the toilet with him, right? I beat his head on the toilet and powdered the toilet. It's like Roadhouse. And but then <laughs> the the other bikers heard the commotion, and I came out of there, and they all started beating me with pool cues, and I was fighting my way out of there, and I made my way out. I got back to the school, and my scalp's all split open everywhere, and my arms are beat to hell from blocking pool cues, and I lost my gold necklace, so I had to go down there the next day uh. to go back and get my friggin' <laughs> necklace. It was a big rope chain necklace that my girlfriend at the time had bought for me. And I walked in, and I go, I lost my chain here last night, and the owner goes, yeah, he goes, you put five people in the hospital last night. He goes, don't ever come back here again, man. Don't, don't come back. This is so. That's just the way it was. That was then. Iowa. That was Iowa. That's well, what we did. Iowa for fun. has such a reputation for tough guys when it comes to wrestling. Yeah. I mean, the Iowa wrestlers. There's. It's like you know, like there's like Thai kickboxers, mm -hmm. Iowa wrestlers. Yeah. It was always this thing. It was almost synonymous with Iowa. When Gable was coaching, the Iowa wrestling team beat up the football team and the basketball team on numerous occasions. <laughs> He'd have to go get those guys out of jail. They just beat up the whole team. Well, I can only imagine. You know, if someone actually thought they were a tough guy and they right. talked to those tough guys, it's right. like, well, we've got to show you something. Yeah. Because you're going through this life with this delusional perspective. And uh, Lou and Ed Bannock and guys like oh. that. Just King Mueller back in those days. Some very, very scary wrestlers. I don't think people truly understand the difference between them and regular human beings. I just don't. I don't think they've right. ever experienced. I think you have to, like, just lock up with them to experience it. The explosiveness, the tendon strength, the, just the power, the sheer just violence that those guys can bring in a short burst of, of energy, it's until you get used to it. And you see it all the time in, in fighting, right? Mm -hmm. A guy who's never trained with guys at that level of athleticism right. suddenly find themselves getting mauled by a superior human being going, holy, sh I yeah. never had any idea a human like this even existed. Well, you see it when Yoel fights. <laughs> Yeah. When Yoel Romero right. gets a hold of guys. When Yoel, you're talking about a guy who meddled in every single international competition he ever entered. And beat Kale Sanderson yeah. when, when Yoel was, was 18 years old, right? Yeah. 
That's a scary dude. And beat him twice. Yeah. He's a fucking monster. Yeah. And when he gets a hold of guys, you see the way he ragdolls people. You're like, holy shit. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's just this next level yeah. athleticism, next level strength, next level technique. And then also just being forged in the competition of that Cuban wrestling program. Right, right. Did you see the podcast I had with him last week? No. I had him on last week with Joey Diaz, and Joey Diaz translated for him. Okay. And they went back and forth. Like, you always try to speak as much as he could in English, yeah. and then Joey would sort of translate the stuff that he couldn't. Right. But he just detailed his, his time in the system, wow. in the Cuban wrestling system, and how intense it was. I wouldn't, I mean, think about it, communist country. That's your ticket yeah. to at least leading a halfway decent life. Well, just to eat. Yeah. You know, he was talking about the difference between the way the elite guys would eat and way, where they would sleep. They would get three meals a day. The other guys would get two. Wow. And the food would be better. Everything would be better. That would motivate you to win. Yeah. And right? they're all together. That's the thing. They're all trained together. So the guys who want your spot are right next to you. Everybody knows, like, oh, you got a, a hurt wrist. They know. Everybody knows everything. Right. And he's like, that competition just makes you a machine. And that's the guy like, that's eating two meals a day wants three meals a day. Fuck yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, then, and then on top of that, you have these fucking incredible genetics. I mean, yeah. the Cubans have unfucking believable genetics. Right, right. It's just a, an amazing pot. But that's, that's really one of the more fascinating things about competition is to see all these variables. And it's to see, like, when you think you've reached this high level, oh, look at this. There's another level past that. Yeah. There's another level past that. And let you, yet you see guys who in no way, shape, or form should be a champion or upper echelon athletically or genetically, but they figured out how to do it. Right, right, right. right. Just super smart. Yeah. Yeah, but you, you see a guy, you know, I would say, you know, if you were to see – Oh, let me think. Smiling Sam Alvey mm -hmm. on the street. Right, right, right. And you got in an argument with him for whatever reason. You think, I'm going to kick this guy's ass. He's wearing a sweater <laughs> with a tie underneath it. <laughs> Looks like a car salesman. The guy's, the guy's tougher than shit. <laughs> you just would never guess. You'd never guess. Yeah, there's a lot of those guys, right? Evan Dunham. You'd never yeah. know. You look at Evan Dunham. Looks like a nice gentleman. Right. He'll beat the fuck out of you. And you just go home and go, I'm never fighting again. This yeah. is just the stupid. Yeah, well, you'd learn that in jiu-jitsu, too. I remember when I first started training, I'd get choked out by guys that just looked like nothing. Computer they like geeks. They weighed 150 pounds. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, especially now. Like, I think now uh, jiu-jitsu has really been uh, adopted by a lot of, uh, like, Eddie calls them, like, nerd assassins. Right. Because they really are. Yeah. Like, these guys who are just really smart or into the technique and into Com the fact uh, that... It's, it's a jiu-jitsu by a computer programmer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That yeah. level of thinking through things. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. I've yeah. rolled with a lot of guys like that and go, this, this is stupid how yeah. good this guy is. Especially now with the leg lock game. With the leg lock game, it seems like strength is less of a factor. Mm -hmm. You know, where yeah. guys are isolating legs and, and you're constantly defending against that. And whatever strength that you do have in your back and your core and your upper body, you're not really getting a chance to utilize it. You're just right. trying to defend if you don't understand the positions. Right. And they get... They get deep. They get a couple steps in on you. Yeah. You're like, Phew. you know, it doesn't take I a strong love, guy. And I always loved leg locks. I loved leg locks. And a guy like Dave Manet, Matt Hume, those guys were all sick leg lockers, mm. right? Yeah, um, sure. You know, Eric Paulson, good leg locker. A lot of those guys that, that were the catches, catch can, and the combo. Who did uh, Matt Hume wrestle in that? Do you remember that one time where Peretti put together a thing with Dan Gable was the commentator with Peretti. He went against an Olympic wrestler, I'm pretty was sure. Was it Kenny My, Johnson? Ken, Kenny Monday? Kenny Monday. I think it was Kenny Monday. It was either Kevin... J yeah. Because Kevin Jackson Monday. lost to... Kevin Jackson lost Kev to Frank Shamrock. No. That was UFC. No, that was Dan Severin. 
No, yeah. Dan, uh, Dan, Dan Henderson, Henderson yeah. lost to Frank. Frank got him in a footlock, right? Right, right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Kenny Monday. That's when Kurt Angle was calling the action, and I was sitting next to Kurt Angle, and Kurt was asking me questions. What's, what's he doing? What's right, he doing? Right, so he right, knew what right. to say on air and stuff. Right, yeah. yeah. That was an interesting thing, that submission tournament. That, I thought it was great. I thought if, it was if they great were to too. ever do it again, I think. But they kind of do that now anyway. They do right? do that now, yeah. but for whatever reason, it doesn't get that much attention. Although Eddie, Eddie Bravo's figured out a way to give it a little bit more attention. Have you seen combat jiu-jitsu? A little bit, They're yeah. doing it basically like Pancration-style slaps, like yeah. open hand strikes. Right. And, um, you know, it opens up. It's, it's also like what we were talking about before with um, there's some stuff that you can get away with in MMA because there's no headbutts. There's some stuff that you can get away with in other styles, yeah. like in, in kickboxing even, because there's no clinching and there's no elbows. Right. There's all these different little things. Well, with, with, with jiu-jitsu, there's a lot of positions where a guy could just smack you in the face. You'd have to let go of the lock. Right. And now guys are doing that with combat jiu-jitsu, and it's a good intermediary step between. I think it's a good way to find out if you're meant for MMA, too. That, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I find Eddie, I've always found Eddie really interesting. He's a trip. He's, he's definitely a trip. a trip. And you can tell he's a thinker. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a very analytical guy, a very anal analytical grappler with great flexibility. I, I just always would watch him and go, this guy's fucking slick, man. Yeah, he knows a lot of shit, especially when it comes to jujitsu. And I'm his... talking, you know, I'm, I'm going to see him tomorrow morning. Oh, really? What are you doing? Uh, you know, Sam Tripoli? Sure, I know Sam very well. Yeah, so I'm doing that show, um, and Eddie's going to be there. I want him to explain Flat Earth to me. He's not going to be able to. <laughs> I want to know, man. Well, this is what it is. Eddie thinks that everybody's lying, that everybody in NASA and the government, and he, because of that, I believe he has a blind spot, and that he, if they're telling you the world's round, he's saying, well, it can't be round. Right. And it's not a good way to think. No. But it's the same reason why he's so good at jiu-jitsu, because he sees an idea, and he just pursues it and chases after it. And he but turns in jiu -jitsu, it around. Right? Jiu-jitsu's like, it's all... You know, it's all quantified. It's all right there. Two bodies. It's all very simple. There's no yeah. mystery. Right. You know, it's right. just a, a figure. It's just figuring out a puzzle. Yeah. But I can see how people get that way because I was a guy who, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but I think it's fun to think about in 1971 when I was, you know, a young boy standing in line in Albia, Iowa with my grandma and my mom when the farm collapse was happening, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, right? Shit fell apart for the farmers right away and my grandma was one of the first people in line to get her money out of the farmers national bank in albia iowa and she got it out and i remember still to this day standing there and asking my mom and my grandma what the hell is going on why is this happening what's going on you could see the panic the farmers went for blocks right from all around that part of iowa mm. and it just i think that's what started the wheels turning in my head about being a contrarian thinker you know what well, I mean? Well, there's real conspiracies, and yeah. there's real things where people misunderstand the, the actual facts. Right. Flat Earth's not one of them. No. It's no. just not. It's just not. <laughs> I mean, there's, they, there's so many stuff. I mean, look, snipers use the curvature of the Earth to calculate ballistics. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a real thing. Right. Know? I mean, there's plenty of shit that's not real. But I that's, want Eddie to tell me. Thing. I want him to explain it's it to gonna me. It's going to be frustrating. <laughs> I don't know if he believes it anymore. He might have let it go by now. I'm hoping he did. Right. I, I don't talk to him about it anymore. I just we, we had a few conversations about it on the podcast, and initially he thought it was stupid. He thought the flat earth concept was stupid. And then all of a sudden he started being open-minded to him. I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Like, what in the fuck are you saying? This is crazy. And he's like, and he kept going to the, like, they faked the moon landing. They're, like, it's not even the same people. Right. Like, the, if, if they yeah. did... 
that was a long fucking time ago. You're talking about people right now. There's satellites all over the world. They, 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 there's a lot of people that think satellites are fake. Um, I think Eddie thinks dinosaurs aren't real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know what's interesting? And I never. And the first time I fought in the UFC, I went into thanks dinosaurs are. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts my head. I went into the the production trailer at my first UFC. I wanted to see what was going on in there. Mm -hmm. Right. That was that always intrigued me right. how TV was put together. Right. And I was lucky enough to bring my daughter to one of our broadcasts with Access TV and uh, Lonnie, who's he's the expert to find the satellites. Mm -hmm. He's got an app on his phone. Have you ever seen guys do that? No. He has an app on his phone where he can punch it in and do this across the sky and s spot all the, the satellites, right? Oh, interesting. So he knows how to dial into them, call up, know the, the coordinates to turn the, the, the dish towards and lock onto a percentage of the satellite you know, receptor to get it beamed back down, all that sort of stuff. So he was teaching my daughter how all that stuff was done, and it was the first time I'd ever seen it. I was like, this is pretty, pretty amazing stuff. But yeah, you can see the curvature of the Earth and how yeah. the satellites are set across the horizon, right? Well, you could track satellites. The thing is, these guys right. don't even believe in satellites. Here's what the problem is. If someone has no interruption and they put together a video and that video, they're, they're articulate and they sound calm, they use big words and they show you images that they're claiming show that the earth is flat, that there's an ice wall outside of Antarctica and that the government won't let you go there. They start saying all these things. If there's no one there, you know, like Neil deGrasse Tyson type guy there, he's going, hey, 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 no. That's not true, and right. here's why, and here's how we know, and here's what we found out, and here's a test you can do yourself, yeah. and here's how you can figure it out, right. and here's what you, could, what you could find online. And here, and like for the longest time, they were trying to say that there was no full pictures of the Earth, that the, uh, the, the Earth, like every photo you see of the Earth is a composite. No, there's a fucking Japanese satellite called the Himawari 8. It takes full, full images of the Earth, high resolution, yeah. every 10 minutes. You can go Google it. Yeah. You can watch them. There's the, the, NASA has one, too. Yeah. There's... there's giant photos of the fucking earth from 22,000 miles out or whatever the hell it is. I'm like, it's real. Right. Yeah. It's fucking real. Like, right. There's a lot of shit to think about that's fascinating. That's not one of them. Like, that's been solved. No, there's, there's a lot. You know, I, I'm into the geopolitical and domestic policy shit. Yeah. Right? That's where I, I was drawn more about what's really going on, you know, behind the news, all that sort of stuff. This is Bullshit. And I was lucky to train a lot of law enforcement and then military, high-level military, and get connected to intel guys who go, Pat, we need to talk. Like, no, you're completely off. You Let me explain things to you, right? It was like, as far as, like, what were you completely off about? Well, I can tell you what I was right about when I called up my buddy and I go, hey, four years ago, whatever it was, four and a half years ago, I go, we're funding ISIS, aren't we? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, NATO's the go-between guy. What do you think? Al-Nusra, ISIS? Friggin' Al-Shabaab, what, what do you fucking think? So you think, why do they fund uh, ISIS? To take out Syria. It was obvious, right? The Mujahideen in Afghanistan right. was to friggin' take out the Russians. But it, the way I looked at it was, when that was going on, funding the Mujahideen was to bankrupt Russia, right? right. We wanted them to go bankrupt, and it worked. Reagan was, was a genius in that part. The diabolical part, of course, is Russia and America both fighting over the resources of Afghanistan. Right. But ISIS was just... There's, that's some weird shit. When you have a 50,000-man army just appear out of nowhere with professional cameramen and editors and producers and directors making the high-level films that they were putting out where it's every three seconds they're cutting different angles, professionally put together films of people being burned, I go, 
This is this this is too weird. This is too weird. You know what people stop talking about? Do you remember when they blamed Benghazi on some bullshit video? Movie? Yeah, yeah, some video that someone made. Right. Was it like the tears of Muslims or something like that? Or I forget that nobody even knew it existed. Nobody knew it existed, yeah. and everybody knew it was bullshit. Right. And they were pushing that as a narrative, like this is what was the motivation behind. And everybody was like, "What? Have you had Peranto on your show? No. Who's Who was, that? Uh, Peranto's what's uh, his name? Former Foreign? Seal." What's his name? Peranto. P O R O N T A. His last name's Peranto. Oh. <laughs> but I think he's a former SEAL. There were several SEALs, obviously, that ran to try and help uh, the ambassador and, and some of the other guys. Peranto lived through it. But, you know, he, when he talks about it, it, they're moving massive amounts of weapons through Libya into Syria, into other places in the Middle East, right? It's just a fact that it's happening. And. That whole thing going down, I think, was a, a way for them to just cover it all up and remove and erase any people that knew about it. You know what I'm saying? That's the way it, it spells out to me pretty obvious because Jesus. it's documented. It's all documented that weapons were being moved. And if you look at um, Arsenal Weapons Manufacturing in uh, Bulgaria, so Diliana Gotenshaiba, who I had on my podcast, the conspiracy farm, right? She was the Bulgarian reporter that got fired. For I didn't know you had a podcast. Yeah, it's called the Conspiracy Farm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I want to Google it. We don't we don't start the conspiracies. We just add the water. <laughs> but I've got I like the name. Yeah, my co-host Jeffrey Wilson. He's a really bright guy. Um, uh, cool, it's a great cool name. Dude. Yeah, so we have fun Do with you have it. T-shirts? Can I wear a Conspiracy Farm? Dude, t-shirt? I was going to bring you one, and I, he couldn't ship me one. So I will. Right. I will. Okay. I'll yes. wear one. So it's a bar, it's a barn Shout with out a CT Fletcher. It's a, it's a barn with a satellite. And a and a satellite dish down next to the barn. Oh, that's hilarious! So that's it, right? And you, are you doing it out of Iowa? Oh yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> it is right. But um, <clears throat> Arsenal Weapons Manufacturing, she exposed the ISIS fighters took here took her to their weapons caches, and there was massive amounts of um, artillery rounds, depleted uranium stuff, uh, small arms stuff, and it was all Arsenal Weapons Bulgarian weapons, right? And she got fired for exposing it. Now, at the same time, Silkway Airlines, who is a Azerbaijani airline, their manifest got exposed by Bulgarian Anonymous with manifests of all the white phosphorus weapons, the depleted uranium, or artillery rounds, all these shipments, massive shipments, going into Turkey, going into Libya, going into uh, the Ukraine, right, where a bunch of shit was going down there. And every one of those places, who showed up to broker the deals? John McCain. Whoa. John McCain, right? And look, we can't prove it, but there's people telling me that potentially there's an offshore company that owns a big percentage of Arsenal weapons manufacturing in Bulgaria, right? So that's the kind of stuff I'm going in. Yeah. I'm into. Who's, who's causing it? Why are they causing it? The truth. I'm just a truth seeker, right? right. Would you seem like that kind of guy? For sure. Do, don't you think that that stuff is exposed at a level that's never been possible before because of the internet yeah yeah and that these people are probably used to operating in a certain way that they've been doing for decades and now they're having to adjust mm -hmm. yeah I, well and and people like you just doing these podcasts and talking about it which opens the minds of other people and and, and has them thinking about it we you know who are the people screaming the most and i wasn't a i wasn't even a trump supporter right i'm a Rand paul guy you got a fucking Rand paul shirt on right a ron paul guy you got to teach him takedown defense. <laughs> Off of a lawn, a lawnmower, right? <laughs> well, he got blindsided in his defense, right? Yeah, but what yeah, the I fuck was that about? Does his neighbor attacked him? His neighbor's a lunatic. Oh, uh, right. Hey, good times. You know, but um, it's a risky thing to do. 
live right next to a guy and attack him. Right. Like you're fucking burning the bridge. I don't, I don't know what kind of sentence that guy got though. I don't. I haven't. I haven't kept up on I that. Don't but think I was he's given sentence yet. During the presidential run, I was given speeches for Rand Paul, a couple of them, to introduce him. So I'd give a speech, then bring him out, and, and I got to know him a little bit better. This is in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing dude. We had great conversations. I'm a big fan of his dad. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but the people that are yelling the most now about Trump and all the other stuff, you wonder what they're guilty of, right? The deep state is just, it is a way of doing business, right? There's smash and grab. Um, there's pay to play. Smash and grab is me as somebody who's very powerful in government going after an industry, crushing it, ruining its stock. And then my buddies buy the company, right? When the mm -hmm. stock collapses and then bringing it back up, like the GI Bill for uh, University of Memphis. We go after it. No longer will there be any GI Bill money put toward that. The stock goes from 100 down to $3. Obama's buddy goes in, buys it. Then they go, ah, we're going to allow GI money to go back into it now. Stock goes back up, right? That's the kind of shit that's going on. It's, it's some bad stuff. And we just do our best to follow it, educate people. And we have a lot of people who say, you're, you're a nut. You're wearing a tinfoil hat. What were you just talking about, Jamie, about uh, something that you'd saw, seen about politicians being uh, exempt from insider trading rules? <clears throat> Someone on Twitter, I couldn't, I'll find the name later, but uh, if this guy, he told me about this guy. His name's Peter Schweizer. He's a Stanford professor. Secret Empires. That's mm. the book. Yeah, he wrote this That's book. the book you want to. He wrote Clinton Cash also. Yeah, there's another book that he hit me up to about, yeah, but this is the one that he just Have wrote. you had him on your show? No, you I have not. That's a guy to have on your okay, show. Okay, I would man. love to have him on. Yeah. How the American political class hides corruption and enriches family and friends. It's, yeah, it's well, without a doubt, there's that shit's real. Yeah, without a doubt, that shit's going on. I mean, look, I mean, we were just talking about this recently about how half of what it is to be president is to get yourself into a position where after you're out, you can make these crazy speeches for these bankers. Like, right. why is that? Like, I mean, it's it's almost like a man. They, I, t I tell you what, you policy. know, there was there was a time when a, a good friend of mine who was an agent for me at the time got me involved because of all the years in MMA and martial arts, I'd met people from all over the world who had eventually moved into peace, uh, positions of power in government or cities or this or that. And so they said, we want you to, to help us get our foot in the door to sell waste to energy projects. So it was basically a, a facility that burns anything garbage. I mean, you can burn tires in the thing at low oxygen levels, so the emissions are very low, but it generates electricity, right? And in Europe, it was everybody from the city, uh, province, uh, that country, and the European Union, everybody wanted a piece of the projects, right? That's just the way they do business in Europe and South America and other places like that. They have to have a different model for it here, for the corruption, right? They just do things differently here, and that's just the way it is. They've made adjustments, and either way, they're going to find their way around it. Yeah, the idea that there's no corruption is ridiculous. Right. No one thinks that. So it's how right. much corruption is there and yeah. how, how many people are out there exposing it and putting their neck out there to expose it. That's a big part of the problem, because if you really know about it, that means you're probably entrenched in the system, too. Yeah. And the cognitive dissonance of the, the citizenry of knowing that Hillary Clinton and a few other people sold, you know, the document just came out. It was 15 million kilograms, 15 milli million kilograms of depleted uranium, yellow cake right sold to the russians at what point in any part of a discussion on any planet is it okay to sell your enemy 
15 million kilograms of friggin' uranium. What was the justification behind it? Have they agreed that this is a fact? And this is, is oh, it's this, a fact. There's, it's a fact. Have they agreed? I mean, is, this, is there any dispute that this is a fact? No, there is no, there's, the, the, uh, no, they, but they sit there and use the excuse, well, there was eight other people that had to sign off on this. Right. What does that mean? <laughs> right. Say, but it was, it's, people also got it's suddenly that company people? suddenly that company invests one hundred and forty five million dollars in the in the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, that's a big problem. That Clinton Foundation is fucking insane. And all these people that were blind supporters of Hillary that didn't look at that. Like, how do you not how do you not find a giant problem with that? Right. It's, right. And that book by Schweitzer talks about it. Mm. He goes in detail about that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. How's that right? I'm alive? surprised. That's what I was yeah. just going to say. He's after got, the Clinton he's not cash, going after the Russians, dude. Clinton cash was bad enough. This yeah. one's even worse. I'm surprised he's not dead. I wonder how many people are actually reading it. You know, it, I just I feel like they think that there's always going to be a certain amount of that stuff out there, and they just tolerate it, and they just as long as it's not really fucking up their business because it's not. The politicians are still allowing it. Right. Law enforcement's still allowing it. No one's really going after them. It makes you wonder, like, if Hillary had actually gotten into the White House and she faced the same scrutiny that Trump is facing right now over the Russian probe. Which we know none of this would be uncovered had she won. Right. Right? right. We know that. Right. Yeah. All of this stuff would have been swept under the rug. Yeah, most likely. Unless, All this stuff with McCabe and uh, uh, Strzok and Page and Comey and all these people of going out of their way to try and derail Trump to get these FISA court friggin' surveillance friggin' warrants. To spy on a president-elect and then a sitting president? Are you yeah. kidding me? At, at what point is, are people not, not charged with treason for that, right? When they were, re they were doing this spying before he ever won the presidency. Don't you think that if he was doing something wrong with the Russians, they would have friggin' made it mainstream news and, and busted him for it? Yeah, there's for sure some dummies in his staff that made some inappropriate meetings and had some, I mean, they, they definitely had some intentions. Well, but, but if they had something on him. The way I look at it is this. I mean, if you win the presidency, I'm going to send whoever is underneath me. If I'm the president, we have to have meetings with diplomats from other countries to make the transition. That's, that's, part, of the, that's part of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. It really is. That goes on. That's just... The way it is. Right, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about before the presidency. They're talking about having meetings with Russians long before. Right. Where they they planned this whole thing out. Look, they got nothing. They're all dirty. They got nothing. They got nothing. I well, mean, if they had something, it would be out there. You know, it's it's that projection and diversion and everything else because you know the Podestas were doing lobbying for the biggest friggin' Russian bank in the world. Right. Right. In Washington D.C. That never comes yeah. up. It's almost like there's too many things to pay attention to. It's like they did everything. They just how, you, how do you keep up? Yeah. How do you how do you corral it all? With all the corruption from yeah. the stock market to natural resources to everything. Right. It's almost there's too many things to take pay attention to. Yeah. It's it's mind boggling. It's like a giant room full of spaghetti. Yeah. You're, and you're in the middle of it, just <laughs> doing <trying>. this. It's <laughs> fucking insane. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That is what it's like. Yeah. It I does mean, that to your brain when you try to comprehend all of it. When you when we do shows and we talk about this stuff, it's it's mind boggling. How many episodes have you done? We've only done like fifty so far, but we've got listeners in one hundred and thirty countries, so we're doing pretty good. That's nice. Know, we're excited. Well, you get more now. Yeah, for sure. Well, because you're kicking ass. Thank you. Well, it's we're gonna. I mean, promoting it here, right here, Conspiracy Farm. Go, <laughs> go download it. Check it out. Um, so, when you started this out, what was the intention? Just just something you're interested in? You know, I did Jeffrey's podcast. It's me speaking to you, and at the very end of it, it was three conspiracy questions, true or false, right? Okay. And I said, can I elaborate on them, though? 
because it might be something that I've actually researched. He goes, yeah, sure. So we, at the end of it, uh, he asked me, I forget what the questions were, but after we were done, I go, hey, I've always wanted to do this podcast and I want to call it the conspiracy farm and I want to talk about geopolitical domestic policy stuff and, and let's, and he goes, I love it, man. He's like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had great guests, you know, a couple Navy SEALs, former Spetsnaz uh, terrorist hunter. Um, well, if you're going to do Sam Tripoli's podcast, Tinfoil Hat, just understand that it's a different kind of conspiracy theory podcast. <laughs> it's like, is Bigfoot psychic? Like those kind of questions. <laughs> oh, dear God. And, and expect to get a contact high from the room. I've always, I've always wanted to ask you about the George St. Pierre stuff with UFOs. I think it's head trauma. Yeah? Yeah. Or did he, did he have sex with a hot green chick? Maybe he did. But if I had a guess, the way he was describing things is very similar to the way people describe things when they've experienced excessive head trauma. Really? Yeah, because he misses time. He, his memory's not, not good. Right. Like, he'll get home, and then he'll have groceries that he bought and left in his trunk and not even realize it, and then he'll go out to his trunk, and they're rotten. And he's like, I don't even remember going to the store. Wow. The alien. Wow. You know, so he's got... I think he's got this idea that this these glitches in his mind. Yeah. It's not a fucking coincidence that the guy got punched in the head. I think they did a stat before the Bisping fight. I think it was more than 800 times wow. he got hit in the head yeah. in his UFC career. Forget about all the gym training. Sparring, everything forget else. Forget about yeah. all the other stuff. Right. And forget about the fights outside the UFC that he had before he got into the UFC. When he was in TKO, remember? Yeah. Um, so he's experience a lot of head trauma one of the symptoms of head trauma is memory loss issues right. yeah i mean um and hendrix hit him hard a lot yes he did yeah and he's only one guy that hit him hard i mean a lot right. of guys hit him hard yeah. matt sarah scrambled his fucking brain right I and mean, a lot of guys hit him hard yeah and that's just outside of sparring i mean that's mm -hmm. outside of everything else that he's done sparring with rory mcdonald and wonder boy and all the other guys that he had to spar with yeah i think that's most likely what it is okay people who have been who've experienced a lot of head trauma that's one of the real problems with it is yeah. um um uh, what is what is the dude from the chicago bears that famous guy from, Dick, uh, no, the Butkus? quarterback quarterback from the bears from oh mcmahon the, yes mcmahon was on the cover of sports illustrated talking about it yeah. that he'll be in the middle of his um his living room holding his keys he had no idea how his keys got in his hand doesn't know where he's going wow like, where am i going like wow. why am i standing there holding my keys you just forget stuff. Scary. Yeah, there's really scary. connections. Yeah. Well, that's why it's so impressive that you, with your long fight career, you kickboxed, you boxed, you you know, you had a lot of MMA fights. I think I learned early on with kickboxing and boxing. I looked at the older guys and listened to them talk and went, I don't want to be that guy. So I started paying right. attention to defense. I started watching films on great boxers with great defense, footwork, head movement, you know, all that sort of stuff, and just. And I, uh, and it was the key. I never got hit with anything I didn't see. I think you have sturdy genes too. You got them Croatian genes. It helps. I'm sure it helps. I'm, it helps. I'm the smallest Croatian on the planet. <laughs> like when you run into Croatians, they're all huge. Like Mirko Krokop type characters. Stipe, yeah. Stipe Miosic, right. who's a bear of a human being, yeah. right? Yeah. Super. But that's just. Have you ever seen the Olympic water polo team from Croatia? No. Fucking scariest dudes on the planet. They're all wait. massive six eight guys that just will drown you. What happened to you? There was a time where someone claimed that you had neck surgery and you didn't. Like a doctor said something about it. I was training for a fight with Frank Trigg outside of the UFC. It was the first round warming up, and I get hit, hit with a left hook, and my neck crunched, and my left arm dropped and wouldn't work anymore. Man, I went fuck. 
This is this just is just really, wouldn't lift at all. It was dead. It was dead. It went like you dead. couldn't move your hand. No, everything was dead. Wow. So how long did that last? It was well. Here I'll tell you. That was the end of the first round. I got cracked with it, right? And I go, all right, let's pick it up the second round. And I hit him with like four or five right hands in a row because that's all I could do. And I crushed his nose and he had to have surgery because I was so pissed off because I, I he blasted me, right? right? And I don't think it was necessarily malicious, but it, we were still warming up and he cranked a left hook on me. It was bad. So over time, everything started to atrophy on this side of the body. Everything started falling apart. And it was very painful. And I went to a neurosurgeon who got an MRI. The neurosurgeon goes, Phew. He goes, your spinal, your your disc exploded in, exploded into your spinal cord and almost severed it against the other side of your spinal canal. And he goes, to make things worse, you have so much stenosis, there's no fluid in there. There's no spinal canal. It's all scar tissue crushing your spinal cord everywhere, cervically, right? Whoa. So you're in, you, you, this was bound to happen. Over all the years of abuse, people wrenching on your neck, punching you, everything else, it just eventually gave way. So he said, you have to have surgery. You're Christopher Reeves if you don't. Like, you fall off a, you know, you fall off a ladder, you're done. Like, you have to have surgery. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Talked to another neurosurgeon. He said the same thing. Then I talked to my cousin at John Hopkins, and he goes, you're truly a moron. You have to have surgery. And I said, fuck you. I'm not going to do it. So three guys tell you, three yeah. medical experts. So I rehabbed, and I, I got this to come back. How'd you do it? Um, there was some, some neuro work by a guy at uh, Palmer College of Chiropractic, which is in Davenport. He's, uh, uh, Juring is his name, Dr. Dave Juring. He's the best athlete to ever come out of Iowa, but he's a, he's a genius when it comes to rebuilding the human body. He was the strength and conditioning guy for U.S. Olympic team, some of the sports, and then was also on the bobsled team. Guy, guy was a freak. So what kind of stuff did he do? He Decompression put, stuff? He, he, no, he, well, that, but he put me in weird positions on a table on my side, and they would block certain, they would put pressure points to stop certain nerves from working, all this other stuff, and tell me to, to move certain parts of my body. And trying so like to get almost like Rolf rerouting, like rerouting uh-huh. of the nervous system and got things going again and rebuilt me. And I got to where this was back to 100%. It happened one other time where this side, and this arm's two inches smaller than this one. Yeah, I could see it. And my shoulder is gone here quite a bit. There's some things I just can't do. I mean, I can still do pull ups and a bunch of other stuff. There's just things I can't do. I was wondering if my mind was playing tricks on me, but no, your, your right arm looks boss, smaller. Boss went through the same thing. Yeah. Right. And this is in your neck right now? Well, they've, uh, my vertebrae have fused together on their own. They wanted to fuse them with, what? You know, yeah, chunks they of bone. They fused together on their own? Yeah. So the surgery that they wanted to do to fuse my vertebrae together, my body did it on its own. Right. I've never even heard of such a thing. Oh, yeah. You know, long enough when the disc is destroyed and dissolves, and then it just all grows together. So my vertebrae what grew the together fuck? on their own. fuck? Yeah. That's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Right. So my I just have to be careful. just listening to you. I just have to be careful. Because I've been paralyzed twice from the neck down. I got hit with an uppercut on the forehead. It wasn't even a hard punch. From Jesse Lennox. I was sparring with Jesse. Before my last fight with Thomas Denny. And he hit me with an uppercut. It wasn't even hard. But the whiplash shut everything down from here down, and I went ragdoll and dropped on my knees. Jesus. And when I was going down, I went, oh, my neck. And I knew that it was really bad. And then another time I got cranked from underneath here, and everything shut down again. But right Both before times the fight, uppercuts. No, this was a, somebody's head was underneath uh, here trying to bear hug me. Oh, okay. But the, the uppercut was right before the Thomas Denny fight a couple weeks before. Ugh. And I went, well, shit, I can't get hit at all now. So I went into that Thomas Denny fight and just said, you know, he's not a powerhouse puncher by any means, but I can't get hit at all. So right. I just danced around for the first five minutes and then knocked him out early in the second round and 
you know, got out of there without getting hit. But it's amazing the <laughs> sense of urgency you get when you know you could be paralyzed. If I wish I would. Hit. I wish I wish I would have fought like that my whole career. Right? <laughs> then you really never get hit. Right. You know? Yeah. So I'm just glad my neck gave out before my brain did. So you know? your your neck now, how is it? Uh, I got. I have to be careful. I still have to be careful. Have you ever thought about getting one of those artificial discs? Um, you know, they at, do that. At this point, they would have to saw my vertebrae apart and put I, them I've in. I've never heard of them seal, healing up like that. Yeah, where, they, yeah. where they seal together on their own. It does happen. It does happen. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so will your right arm come back to a normal size? It's been like this for years now. Wow. So I did tons of rehab. This was... How long uh, ago did this happen? Well, when I was training for the Frank Trigg fight, when it first happened, I didn't even remember. Again, that's just like... I, right. dates. Dates are just... Think of how many fights you've called, mm-hmm. right? Do you remember certain years of like any fight I could name, or could you pull? It? I see you as kind of a guy with a photographic memory, so you're, I have you're a pretty memory sharp. For things that are interesting, to you're me. pretty sharp. But if you talk, like ask that. my wife, she's like, "This motherfucker doesn't remember <laughs> shit." <laughs> I have a very selective memory, right? But with fights, I have a particularly good memory. I everything to me because of fighting for all those years, coaching for all those years, and doing right. commentary for all those years. It's, it's one big mess of just fights. Like, I'll remember right. the Hughes Trigg fights forever. Right. Sure. I'll, I'll remember, you know, Tim winning the title. You know, right. I'll remember the, that sort of stuff. But everything else is, honestly, but or like a Jason Black who's in a war with a guy from American Top Team, and he comes back and he sits in the sits on the stool. Some of the funniest shit I've ever seen was in fights, right? You've you've seen it. Mm-hmm. And I think you might have even been calling the fight. Jason Black sits down and it's been a war for two rounds of just insanity. And Jason Black was a great wrestler, just tough as nails kind of guy. And I go, Jason, dude, stop boxing with this guy. Let's go out, let's let's take him down, let's get him on his back, let's keep him there, let's rough him up, and let's win this round and we win the fight and we get out of here. And he's doing this while I'm talking to him. He's just looking around at the crowd. Kind of like this. And I go, Jason, Jason, fucking look at me. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah. And I go, what did I just tell you to do? And he goes, go out and dance with him. And the Fertitta brothers are right there. And Dana, and they start laughing their asses off. And I go, whatever, go out and do what you want to do. So he went out. It turned into a brawl. He ended up losing the fight. (laughs) Jason is one of the guys, the first guys that I saw cut weight to the point where I was like, okay, he might die. When he went to 55, yeah. he was a fucking anatomy lesson. You remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, sure you remember. Right. When Some he went to 55, cuts. that motherfucker had zero fat. Right. It yeah. was crazy. And he, he was really a strong guy. I mean, he was, I mean, if he got head Underappreciated. Yeah. Underappreciated. Yeah. One of the toughest yeah. guys I've ever been around. I feel like he was a tweener. Like maybe a little too big for 50, uh, to, for 70 or 55. Too small for 70. Too small for 70. Yeah. 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 It was I think a there's been deal. a few guys like that yeah. that were like, you know, real world class fighters. But the reality of those 70s is you're dealing with guys that are cutting from 205 and up. Yeah. And the reality of the 55s is that like that's a fucking horrible strain for your body. Right, right. When no, you, I remember. I, you know, seeing guys cut weight and be in a lot of trouble physically, right? Yeah. But our thing was always make weight no matter what. I mean, that's just the way it was. I think I had one guy that didn't make weight for a fight in the IFL, and he got run out of the gym because of it, right? Right. He just got run out of the gym because everybody was so pissed at him for not making weight. Right. Um, seen some horrible weight cuts with people, but I had a weight cut where it was in New Jersey. The weigh-ins were the day of the fight. Which fight was this? Shoney Carter at Continental Airlines Arena. The weigh-ins were the day of the fight. That morning, right? Why? Just the way it was. And the way it broke down, the way it all went down was I had a new gym, a Gold's gym, building a brand new house, had a brand new baby, 
and I had to win the fight to have enough money for the down payment on the house. Oh, Jesus. They're already building it. We already signed the paperwork. Oh, right? Christ. So I'm cutting weight, and I've been so busy that I wasn't paying enough attention to my weight, and I was struggling. So the whole night, I stayed awake the whole night, and all I thought about was, I know I can beat this guy. This guy's not going to beat me. But if he headbutts me or for whatever reason, and I don't win the fight, and I and lose that money. I lose my house. Oh my God, I start to panic, right? And when you're cutting weight like that, it's everything's magnified a hundred times. The, right. the, the, just the fear and everything else. And all I thought about was that, water and egg white, or uh, scrambled eggs all night, <laughs> the whole night. And by the time it was time to weigh in, I went and knocked on Matt Hughes and Jens Pulver's door and I go, hey man, I'm in some serious trouble right now. I'm I because I sucked on ice cubes all night and I gained like two pounds or whatever. So I had to go cut again. What? How did you gain weight? Just from sucking on ice cubes. You all sucked night. two pounds of ice cubes? I guess. Yeah, because I didn't even know where I was at. I was losing my mind. Right? Oh wow! So I did that all night and then so I made weight and then I went back to my hotel room and I started cramping. Everything cramped. I had to tie my wrestling shoes on as tight as I could possibly tie them, so my feet wouldn't bend like this. Right? Whoa! And then my calves started cramping. Everything cramped to the point where I was curled up in the fetal position, and I knew I had to fight that night. Holy right? shit! So I couldn't see right. There was a bunch of stuff going wrong with my body. So I called up Monty Cox in his room, and I go, "You got to get somebody to take me to the hospital to get IVs, or this shit's not happening." He goes, "All right, I'm sending Tom Sauer." Right? So you remember Tom Sauer? Yes. So Tom Sauer comes to get me, and everybody who knows Tom knows he had really severe Tourette's, right? Really severe Tourette's. Like, if he's around black people, the N-word's getting yelled constantly, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, he's around women, he's yelling, hunt, uh, hunt, whore, bitch, right. bitch, 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 right? Oh, the whole time. Jesus really Christ. loud. So anyway, he comes and gets me, takes me to the hospital. We're walking up to the hospital in New Jersey. The whole hospital is all glass windows. Everybody that works in the hospital is black. Oh, no. Now, imagine the kind of situation I'm in mentally and physically, and I stop, and I put my hand on his chest, and I go, Tom, you cannot go in here with me. Oh, my God. You're going to yell the N-word a million times. They're going to kick us out. I'm not going to get my IVs. Right. I'm not going to be able to fight. I'm going to lose my house. I was like, ah, I was losing my mind. Right. And he goes, Pat, it's okay. Chirp, 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 click, click. Right. He goes, it's fine. He goes, I'm a Dade County paramedic. He goes, I deal with this constantly. It's okay. So we walk in, we go up to the nurse at the reception desk, and he goes, hey, he goes, my friend, click, 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 N-word, N-word, N-word. Oh, no. Right? And she, <laughs> she looks at him and goes, say what? And he goes, I have Tourette's. I have severe Tourette's. Please don't. He goes, my friend needs an IV badly. And she looks at me and goes, oh, shit. Like, I look that bad. Wow. My eyes were way back in my head. I, I was in rough shape. So they gave me three liters of saline. Three liters? Yeah. Revived me enough. Think of like a two-liter Pepsi. That and was three of those. another one. Three of those. Wow. Well, th three, three, three yeah. one liters. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of water. Right, right. And so they revived me enough. I was still seeing double when it came fight time. And so the first round, I just took Shoney down. I threw him, took him down, stayed mounted on him the whole first round to get him to wear himself out. Right, right. Just right. hitting him with ponches, elbows, just stuff, just... Not going overboard, right. but I wanted him to be tired going into the second round. How diminished are you in this state? Bad. Yeah, it was bad. Like was half, bad. You, half your capacity. Maybe, maybe, yeah. So the second round, I just went, okay, now i got to end it. So I just I head kicked him and knocked him out. I remember that. And I just went, I made it out of that with the skin of my teeth. Whew. You know, but so it's just, 
Weight cutting can be very extreme. Yeah. It really can. But we always believed in you have to make weight. You sign your name. And that's why I get so pissed off and disgusted when people don't make weight. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a lack of discipline. It is. For sure. If, unless it's not physically possible for you to make the weight. Like if you're a heavyweight and you want to make lightweight, that's not physically possible. Right. So then don't sign. And it's a lack fight. of commitment. See, yeah. that's the thing that I, I'm disgusted most with is that people don't, aren't committed to what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. You've obviously committed to what you do. You're very good at the things that you do. Right. It is. It's obvious. You're obviously a talented guy, but you work at your craft. Right. You know, there, there came a time where I had to leave college to go home, take care of my alien mother and had to work three jobs and realized sitting in a basement that I was raised in. Every time it rained, it flooded. My feet were in water. I woke up one morning and I was doing, you know, had started out fighting and everything. And I said, this is it. I'm going to win a world title. I'm going to win a UFC title. That's it. This is it. And I loaded a nine millimeter pistol and I put a round in the chamber and I put it in my sock drawer and I said, if I don't want a world title, that gun's going in my mouth and I'm done. <laughs> this is it, right? Jesus. So every time I fought, I thought about that gun in my sock drawer and not wanted to go home to it. And that's just, that's commitment. That was my, that's what was needed for me to succeed at that point in my life. That's the wow. way it was. So when I see people not, when they're talented and they're not committed, I don't want anything to do with them. I just yeah. don't. I don't have time for people like that. I'll take a guy who's committed and sucks and train him every day right. because I love his commitment. Well, there's some guys that just make some real critical errors, but they're incredibly talented, like Nurmagomedov. Like, you know, when he missed fight, the fight with Tony Ferguson, right. and he literally, his body was shutting down. They had to take him to the hospital. All comes to preparation, though. He should have prepared ready. better. Yeah, right. he should have yeah. gotten lighter beforehand. He should have watched mm -hmm. his diet. Yeah. Now that he has a nutritionist, he made Wade pretty easy for his last fight with Barboza, and now he's going to be fighting for right. the title. Again. And the guy's a monster. He's a fucking monster. Yeah. But, you know, Askren had a real good point. Uh, what they do with one FC, I think, is the way to do it. You know, with one FC, they test you. They have a hydration test, and they test you. And right. whatever weight the champions are, they just bumped everybody up a notch, and yeah. they bumped him up to 185. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, "There's no cutting weight here." Like, right. that, and I think that's a, just an unfortunate part of martial arts yeah. is this weight cutting shit. Well, it it's with wrestling. It's with yeah. boxing. It's, think about you know they complain about the f the fighters cutting weight. Mm -hmm. That's for you know three four times a year really it's not that hard right try cutting weight your entire life every wrestling season yeah. and when you wrestle during the winter then spring summer for freestyle and greco right you know I, that was probably the thing that made me so small compared to my brothers they were all six four six five sure is i cut weight from sixth grade all the way through high school and into college and then fighting yeah. right so my during my growing years though i was starving Right. That's just the way it was. Yeah. And so it stunted my growth, most likely. I'm sure it did. Yeah. There's, I knew a lot of guys from wrestling that were like that. Their right. brothers were big and they were small. But I think that it's just unnecessary for MMA. I mean, you're dealing with professional athletes at the highest level of the game. I think they should just cut it out. I just think they should implement it's just the 1FC. It's never going to happen, though. Everybody's going to look for that edge, the right? FC. If they do the yeah. 1FC rules, they test you three times. Yeah. They test your weight. They get a base weight off of you. They get hydration as levels As long as everybody every has to follow that same. Yeah. yeah. Well, I of get course. It. Look, everybody has to follow the USADA rules. Right. I don't think – I think the, the, the rules, like in, in reference to guys using performance-enhancing drugs – it's just as critical to keep guys from fighting dehydrated right. or from being dehydrated. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, obviously there's risks. Yeah. You know, fighting dehydrated. You saw the, which boxing, which boxing match was it? Was it, um, God, a little Italian dude got the hell beat out of him. Was it, um, who fought Ward three times in wars? 
Mickey Ward and uh, Arturo Gotti Artur- fought Gotti uh, fought a little Camacho. Ati- yeah, and no, what? Not Camacho. Camosi, Joe Camacho. What was, the fuck was his name? Kid he, from Maine, Louis de Maine. But he wrecked him. Yeah, he destroyed horrible. him because he was a lot he was so bigger. much bigger. Than yeah. Him. yeah. So that, you know, there's risks, obviously. So who, who was that? Pull, pull up Arturo Gotti's record. professional record. Yeah. He would think, I remember that his his name was Joe. He was from Lewiston, Maine. He's a talented guy. Yeah. And Arturo Gotti was looked like he was two weight classes bigger than him, and he fucked him up. Right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. If you got to pee, go ahead. <laughs> He's writing it down. Well, what do you got here? Um, you just added go it? Go way back. No, we're live. <laughs> Joe Gamach. I needed a bucket. Joey Gamach. That's who it was. Yeah. Joey Gamach. I remember that. That was horrific. That was 2000. Man, time flies. How crazy. Pat Miletich, tough guy, can't hold his piss. Now we know. That's probably why I had a hard time cutting weight. That doesn't make any sense. Um, pull that fight up. I'm going to see that fight. Mickey, uh, Arturo Gotti, Joey Gamach. That was a disturbing one. The thing is, like, you see so many of those kind of KOs in MMA. It makes you realize, yeah, Arturo Gotti was just far bigger than him in this fight. And he was also... This is Arturo Gotti when he was really world-class, too, at the top of his game. Aren't they working on a Gotti movie or something? Well, you know, he was killed by his girlfriend. He was killed by his girlfriend. She got away with it, or his wife. His wife was this Brazilian chick, and she got out of jail. When she got out of jail, she was smiling. It's really disturbing. He got clipped there with a left hook. It was real bad. Like, um, they think that there was some severe... Oh, there's the KO. They think there's some severe... Uh, corruption involved in her uh, her acquittal because she got acquitted in Brazil and they said that he was he committed suicide but he had some sort of blunt force trauma on his head it was a it was a big deal and it was very it was very sad for a lot of people that were Arturo Gotti fans because his fights with Mickey Ward were there's fights where guys are matched perfectly where it's like their skill level. We're talking about Arturo Gotti and Mickey Ward and how Gotti was, uh, Pat Miletic returns from the restroom, how Gotti was um, killed by his girlfriend or his wife right? and acquitted. She was acquitted, and it was like pretty obvious that someone murdered him, and they passed it off as a, uh, as a suicide. And then Because of domestic or something? No, no. She fucking killed him, man. And when she got out of jail, she was smiling. She's like... She's like taking, they're taking pictures of her leaving jail. I think it was just a Brazil job. Like, a, right. you know, corruption in Brazil is bad. Is bad. Yeah. I mean, they tried to get rid of the fucking president recently, right? I don't they, know what they, happened they were, with that. They were just stealing money. Yeah. Period. Right? There's some severe corruption in Brazil. And apparently, in this case, most people think that she killed him and that she got away with it. Yeah. To get an understanding, too, of the Brazilian people, you have to read a book called um, To Guerrero. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that book? No. I saw the City of God, though. Yeah? You want to understand fucking Brazilians, watch that movie, City of God. I've never heard of it. Holy shit. Go ahead. Tell me about this movie, and I'll tell you about this book, brother. El Tigrero Tigrero was a book about Sasha and Ernst Semmel, two Russians who had engineering degrees, who went to Brazil around 1920, 1921 during the Diamond Rush, right? Mm. And this is when, ironically, I think, when the the Gracie started learning jiu-jitsu, right? Oh, about the same, yeah, about the same area. So Ernst and Sasha Semmel both were catch wrestling guys and boxers, right? just tough Russians, right? We know how tough Russians are. So anyway, 
they are working their way through Brazil and through the Mato Grosso, stopping at ranches and towns, fixing guns, because the Brazilians didn't know how to fix their guns, to pay their way further in as they were getting towards the rivers and all that sort of stuff and, and to find diamonds. So that, that was their thing. But during all of this, uh, Sasha Semmel was fighting no-holds-barred fights against Paraguayan strongmen and all this sort of stuff in, in the ring. And then he became a guy who was what's called a tigrero, a guy who can use a spear and kill one of the big cats in the jungles back then that was killing the cattle, killing the ranch hands, all this sort of stuff. These are 400-pound cats, right? These are big, scary panthers in the jungle. So he went and sought out and found a, a uh, Indian, a Brazilian Indian, who was supposedly a tigrero, the expert. And he found this guy, and the guy's just drunk, just completely drunk. And he goes, I want you to take me and teach me how to do this. And so they go, and the guy's drinking the whole time. And he goes, they run across a big cat. And what these cats would do is riflemen on horses would go track the cats. The cats would double back on them, take them off their horse, and kill them, right? So they were killing riflemen. So these cats were smart. So this guy taught him, though. He watched this guy drunk kill a 400-pound cat with a spear. And then he taught him how they would sit on their paws, whether they were going high to attack you, whether they were coming low, how to position the spear, all that sort of stuff. So uh, Sasha Semmel became a white guy who killed 33 big cats for ranches, right? What? Yeah. With a spear? Yeah, it's the coolest. It's the coolest. You couldn't write it any better, but to tell you about the Brazilian mindset, there was a guy in one of the uh, gunsmith, blacksmith shops where they were fixing guns for people that this one Brazilian had an attitude and Sasha insulted him in front of the friends. So this guy, then once you insult a Brazilian back in those days, especially they have to kill you because you disrespected them so badly in front of their family and friends. And that that's, they're just hot blooded people, right? You've been around enough Brazilians. They're hot blooded people. Vanderlei Silva, when he loses right. his temper, it's a pretty scary dude. So this guy tracks them for a while, and then they, they hire a guy that's the sheriff of Pasafundo who has a necklace of human ears to prove he, he brings back the ears of the person you paid him to kill, and that's how he got paid, right? So he had a necklace of human ears, and he was hunting Sasha and Ernst. It's the coolest book you've ever read. Wow. It's incredible. Tigrero, how do you spell it? Tigrero. T-I-G-R-E-R-O. But it's a rare book. Uh, a friend of mine gave it. T-I-G-R-E-R-O. E-R-O. E-R-O. Tigrero. It's a rare book. It's hard to find. And John Wayne was going to make a movie about it, but they couldn't do the movie. They were going to do it in the 50s or whatever it was, but they couldn't because the Amazon was still too dangerous. There's cannibals everywhere and all kinds of stuff and you know malaria and everything else. So they, there's actually a documentary about going there to, to do the site surveys and all that sort of stuff, and they went. Do they have malaria in South America? I think so. I thought malaria yeah. is just in an the African Amazon, in, in the Amazon and stuff like that. Really? Right. Well, I'm sure they got plenty of diseases. But yeah, the cannibals, <laughs> that's like what got that, that explorer, that English explorer in the Lost City of Z, right? I, I've never heard of that. Yeah. The Lost City of Z is a book that they turned into a movie a couple of years ago about this guy. And it turned out that what he had discovered has now been proven that there was some ancient systems there, uh, some ancient... Um, uh, civilization yeah civilization right. but also irrigation systems and they've, they've figured out that they had all these roads and stuff because of satellite imagery uh, there and some new technology where they can look through the bushes and all the the jungle foliage and stuff and see, see these structures buildings and yeah. roads and everything well you look sit at there this and you, dude 
That's it. Yeah. There he is. That's him. Is that a spear right next to him? There's pictures of is that him. A gun or a spear? Gun with a bayonet on it. I oh. But there's pictures of him with spears going up against cats, too. Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> he was hardcore, man. He was wow, hardcore. Yeah, there's a spear. That's a spear. But what some, a fucking animal. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's so crazy. Yeah, think about that. I spoke to his son. I was wow. I was I was writing a screenplay on his life. Wow. And I talked to his son, Sasha Jr., about it. And um, he eventually just didn't want to do the life rights thing and all that. And what if they ate the the jaguars? I have no idea. Because uh, no did you know mountain lion's delicious? Is it? I have people that say it's their favorite food. Really? Yeah, yeah. I had no idea you could even eat it, but it's apparently a more delicious version of pork. Wow. Yeah, it's supposed to be fantastic. Mountain huh. lion loin, like the really? back loin, backstrap huh. from mountain lion. Mountain lion, yeah. There's things I'll eat and things I won't. I don't know if I'd eat a predator. I'd eat the fuck out of a mountain lion. Yeah? I don't like them. Yeah, I eat them. <laughs> One of them killed my dog when I lived in Colorado. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've seen I've seen two of them. I saw that one and I saw one of them in Santa Barbara. Oh really? I was actually driving through Montecito, wow. a real nice neighborhood. Yeah. And I saw this thing run across the road and I thir first I thought it was a coyote yeah. and then I saw the tail. And I went, Oh shit, that's a cat. Wow. And then I realized it was, was a, it a big cat. Line. Not that big. No. Like, 50, 60 pounds. Because there's some maybe big ones. 70. There's obviously some massive oh, ones some out there. Fucking giant ones. Yeah. Yeah. Colorado's got some fucking whoppers. Yeah. And the coyotes, yeah. the coyotes where I live, they're they're everywhere. You ever see the picture of the one? We're supposed to get that. Whatever happened with that? The one the the Hollywood sign with the cat with the we're supposed to oh, buy yeah. that. I need to get it. I found the place to get it. Yeah. Let me let me revisit yeah, yeah. that right. and buy that thing. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a, an iconic photo to me that just symbolizes our intrusion into the wild world and the consequences of it. There's an enormous cat that lives in the Hollywood Hills. Okay. And there's a photo of him. Look at this. This is taken by a camera trap. This is a real photo wow. of this fucking cat. Oh, they've got the him Hollywood tagged. They've got yep. the collar on him. They've got a collar on him. They know the cat. I had a... I forget the guy's name. The gentleman that we, we talked about the other day that was a, the, wow. uh, the ranger um, was explaining to us how they do it. They have to dart this fucker every couple of years when the, the Change collar the goes dead. Yeah. yeah. So every couple of years, this guy goes into fucking dreamland like George St. Pierre. <laughs> and uh, I lost the time and comes back. Oh, there's him with a deer. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like digging a hole, I guess. No, the coyotes are ruthless where I live, man. They're everywhere. Oh, they're fucking everywhere. One one killed my chicken just two days ago. Oh, really? Yeah, I have chickens. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was out in the backyard. I saw the cunt jump on the roof of the chicken coop and then jump over the top of the fence. Ah. They're so graceful, though. They're smart. It's all so smart, man. One of my, one of my good buddies who... He sold his company to Orkin, so he was an expert at getting rid of deer getting rid of coyotes getting rid of anything off your property getting rid of raccoons out of your house whatever right he's mm -hmm. he's the guy that started trapping when he was 10 years old right and some of my buddies did that and he was one of them but he became the expert sold his company to orkin for a lot of money mm. um, but he's the first and foremost guy besides one other guy i think world worldwide that is the expert in trapping coyotes and when he explains it to you you sit there and go how smart are these if there's anything out of place they never take the same way back to their den ever they always go a different route they're smart about covering their tracks and to trap them he goes if you do one thing wrong they they recognize it right away and they're gone so he had to go and, and really study research and there's a great years. book by dan flores it's called coyote america yeah. and uh dan is a uh he's a professor at a, i think was he from university in new mexico he's from new mexico genius guy but he went 
into great detail about how intelligent these fucking things are, yeah. about how Native Americans used to think they were gods, yeah. that they were tricksters. And they're basically wolves. They're a small wolf. Miniature, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're just a miniature wolf. Super, super intelligent. And I, my old house that I had that had some timber on it and stuff, I had a fox den across the creek on the hillside. The fo- I'd watch the hot fox coming back with squirrels and rabbits every morning at 4 or 5 when I'd be up to get, wor- get workouts in. I'd be drinking coffee. I'd have turkey vultures on my friggin'. Turkey vultures are this big, man. They're massive. And they'd sit on the railing of my, my pad, my porch outside. You know, my, I hear my wife scream, the, just shriek and go, Jesus. <laughs> and I go, what? And she goes, what the fuck are those things? And then there'd Was be, she not from around there? No, she's from Montreal. Oh. Right? oh her first okay. language is French. She's a city girl, all that oh, sort of stuff. Oh, wow. That's, he brought her to Iowa. <laughs> well, she was studying to be a doctor of chiropractic in, in, uh, at Palmer, which is in Davenport, Iowa. And uh, so- you know, the thing is, though, I had eagles, owls, hawks, herds of deer, coyotes, all kinds of crazy stuff running through my yard constantly. And that's when I had the mastiff and a, and a shepherd and some other stuff that, uh, you know, my mastiff wanted to kill everything that came into my oh, yard. Oh, for man. sure. Yeah. A big-ass dog like that? Yeah. I was the – that's like one of the best places in the world for white-tailed deer. They're huge. I have a buddy of mine, my friend John Dudley. He bought a farm out in Iowa yeah. just to hunt whitetails. Yeah, so the – the Militich farm is down in southern Iowa, and my grandma on the other side, her farm was down there also, and it's, you know, obviously a lot of timber also, and it's the deer you see down there. And even, you know, in Bettendorf, Iowa, where I live, which is right next to the Mississippi River, the deer are huge. You yeah. know, I see a deer in Texas, and they look like a German shepherd. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah. It's You know what that is? That's the, the warmth. There's, well, there's and the a, corn. Principle. There's that, too. Corn, yeah. soybeans, yeah. all that sort of stuff. They're mm-hmm. well-fed all the time, and they... Uh, uh, dude, I hit a deer, what was it, a year and a half ago with my F-150, and all it was was his chest hit the front quarter, front of the quarter panel and scraped down it and destroyed the whole side of my truck. Just yeah. destroyed it. They're that big. They're tanks. Yeah. yeah. Now imagine hitting a moose. My dad hit a moose. Almost Ooh, killed him. Oh, Jesus. It, it, uh, the, the vehicle caught on fire because the moose crushed into the engine compartment and caved in the front of the vehicle and then... It all caught on fire. My dad had to friggin' go out to kick the back window out to get out. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And if you honk at a moose, if you stop and then honk at a moose, they'll, a kick bull, your ass. they'll run and, and smash your car. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, seeing a moose, I went on a fishing trip, one of the many fishing trips I went on in Canada with a friend of mine, Mark Lewis, and we were in a, a V-bottom boat. There was three of us, and we were going, the English River system, if you ever want to go fishing in the summer for badass fish. I mean, you'll, you'll wear out catching fish up there. It's north of Lake of the Woods. And we were going across the lake, and the English River system is massive, and it's endless amounts of islands. You can get lost real easy up there. But we were cutting across the lake, and we got into this bay, and there was a moose swimming across the bay, and, you know, the huge rack on it and everything else. And my buddy Mark goes, pull up next to it. I go, what? He goes, yeah, just pull up right to its ass end. So I pulled up kind of just on its ass, and he jumps out of the boat on its back. Oh no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah. So he's. Oh my god. So he's riding on the back of the moose, and the moose is doing this, trying to get to him. And finally, he jumps off, climbs back in the boat. We turn away, and right then, the moose hit shallow ground and came up. Right after, he would have been dead. He would have been dead. Yeah. It's a big fucking animal. Yeah. They're one of the rare deer species that almost regularly charges people. Yeah. 
Yeah, they fuck people up all the time. They run into Duluth, Minnesota, in downtown, and smash everybody. Yeah, they just stomp people in in Alaska <laughs> too. And it's usually the problem is if you find a, a female that's with her babies, you're that's, done. That's when you're in real, real trouble. Right, right. Yeah. So do you hunt much? Yeah, a lot. Do you? Yeah. Where do you hunt? Where do you hunt usually? I've hunted in Iowa. I hunted in Iowa for whitetail last year. Southern Iowa? Whitetail. Um, he's outside of Des Moines. Okay. About yeah. like uh, 45 minutes okay. outside of Des Moines. Um, I hunt Utah. I shot an elk in Utah this year. Um, I got uh, another elk in um, Central California. Um, I try to go to as many places as possible. I'm going next month. I'm going to Lanai for Axis deer. Okay. Mostly bow hunt. That's right, what I do right. most of the That's time. That's cool. Yeah, I love it. Got a hell of a bow uh, hunting thing set up in here. Yeah, it's pretty bad aspect there. Yeah. Sick. 45-yard indoor range. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. It's good. Keep practice. They, the doctor that I told you about, uh, Tyson Cobb, the orthopedic surgeon that fixed Tim's arm, mm -hmm. he was a bow hunter who went and got crocodile in Africa, you know, big all-giant game, stuff like that, and... Um, you know, the stuff that he hunted was, I mean, you know, killing a grizzly with a bow is that's some scary stuff. Yeah. That's a real risky proposition. Yeah, yeah. But he did, he did stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Dudley that I was telling you about that lives in Iowa, he, he does that too. He yeah. goes all over the world and, and hunts. You miss. Yeah. It's very, very risky. Yeah. Very risky. Right. But you know, it's the thing about the grizzly hunting is like, People don't like it. Like it's gotten to the point where in BC they've outlawed it, right? And uh, they really shouldn't have. And the reason being is that you got to control the populations because there's nothing that eats them, right? Like right. except them. Yeah. They they're all cannibals. All right. grizzlies, all even black bears are all cannibals. They, they eat, eat the each cubs. Other, they eat the that. cubs all the time. Right. And if one of them dies, like if you, I've been black bear hunting before, and if you shoot a black bear and like maybe you shoot it like right before dark and it runs off into the bush, can't you find. You it. don't want to go after it. Right. You come back in the morning, bears are eating it. Yeah. They, yeah. eat, they eat their own. I've just been a guy that, you know, I, I, I don't have time to hunt. I, I've gone deer hunting a couple times. I just never, you know, right. I, I'm more of fish. I love to fish. I do too. Right. So that's what my thing. What kind of fishing you do? I'll fish for, uh, you know, I've fished for shark off a beach before. That's uh, another thing that people get mad at. They get mad if you eat sharks now. Well, it's we let them thing. go. We let them right. go. You know, that's not, not a big deal. But I watched a guy from Black Bart's uh, tackle company. They taught me how to do it off the beach. These guys are catching 14-foot hammerheads off the beach, dude. Do you know one of the best places to hunt, to fish for sharks, rather, is off of Catalina? Oh, right, really? Right out, right out for here. For Great White? No, for uh, Mako. Okay. It's like one of the best Mako shark Which are hunting. massive, too. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but they taught me how to do that. I love fishing for barracuda just because they're so aggressive. It's a fun fish. Oh, my God. They're yeah. scarier than hell. As fast as they hit a lure, it's crazy. They're but crazy I, looking. Yeah. And I love musky pike fishing, yeah. bass fishing. I was going to say, they look like a pike on steroids. Yeah, That's they are. Like. That's what yeah. they are. They're the sea water you musky version. fish? Oh, yeah. Muskies are awesome. So, I went musky fishing at the Lucudere Indian Reservation. Um, it's the Chippewa Flowage, where the biggest musky in the world was ever caught, right? Really? How big so, is that? Uh, 67 pounds, 71 so pounds. I don't know, crazy. but it's, it's huge. It's, it's huge. Coyote-sized muskie. But they've found jaws and teeth of muskies that are twice that size, right? Just washed up on shore type stuff. <sighs> so there's huge muskies still. But the guy that took me fishing, he took a job. He used to work in Vegas for the casino down in Vegas. I forget which one. And he left that and went back to Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, because he wanted to musky fish, right? So he wow. took a job with the Lacoudre Indian Reservation. Just so he could musky fish. So he and he was the vice president. Holy of, yeah. shit. Yeah. Look at the size of that fucking they're thing. They're terrifying. Right? That looks like a person. That's like a person sized <laughs> fish. That's so, that's less than sixty pounds. But those will uh, those will attack you. 
Oh yeah. You know they'll attack you. They're that. that I knew a, a dude who um, invented a lure. Um, do I know him or I know his friend? I don't know. Anyway, someone invented a lure that was a duck. Yeah. It was a. That's fake what my grandpa used to fish duck. for him with ducklings. You hook them through the tail and throw them out on top of the lake and let them swim around, and a muskie would hit them. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's how they that do they it. They regularly eat ducks. Yeah. <laughs> this so, guy had a, a, a lure. Well, you that can look on you YouTube. Pull it that. in. As you reeled it in, the paddles, the the feet would move, right. and the muskie would think it's a real duck, and, and they'd jack them. Yeah. yeah. So they, but the guy that was the he was that casino guy that took me fishing. What do you got here, Jamie? a suicide duck lure oh so okay so <laughs> nice see this is my fishing days are a long fucking time ago yeah this is like when i was a very early teenager like 13 14 i was addicted okay. to fishing i fish constantly i still right. fish i still love it but uh i'm out of the loop in terms of like that this is a regular thing so this is a duck oh so the duck is like he's running away and, and a muskie comes and jacks gotta it. make him look panicked right? yeah yeah but the uh the, he was the vice president of the muskie world association and he took me fishing and he goes there we have tons of muskies that we've radio tagged he goes but we're not going to use that that's cheating i know their patterns How do they anyway radio tag a muskie they just put punch the thing by the dorsal fin and it's got oh, the little wow. so they gives out a transmitter and you know you, you huh. can you can find out their patterns or whatever but he goes i'll take you muskie fishing tomorrow if you want to go i said yeah awesome so we go to the bait store and he gets chubs this big that's the bait so we're t you're holding your hand out about a foot and a half they're at least 12, 14 inch fish, right? Wow. That's the bait, right? And he'd hook them through by the dorsal fin. We'd go out in the boat, drop the, the, the chub straight down. Then we'd go back to the island and he had a rod holder, put the pole in there, set the drag reel light, put a bobber at the top of the, of the line so you could see the bobber move if something was taken off with it. And we did that four separate times with four lines. And then we sat in the boat and ate sandwiches and just talked. And then all of a sudden the bobber takes off he goes, all right, I'm going to pull up. You run and grab the pole, jump back in the boat. He goes, I'm going to maneuver you and keep you. You have to stay over the top of the fish. And with muskie, trolling motors scare them, but a regular boat motor idling does not for some reason. So I'm learning a ton of stuff from this guy. And he goes, we have to, for 25 minutes, you have to let him turn that fish head first and then swallow it. That's the rule. About 25 minutes it takes them. They take their time. They wait till it's dead. They crush it with their jaws, and they slowly flip it. And then they swallow it. And he goes, but if it starts to run any time before that, you have to try and set the hook. That's just the way it is. Right. So, And this is my first time musky fishing. So when, it, when they start chewing on them, you just wait? Yeah. Yeah, you stay over them. So the, the musky will be swimming the along. The size of that fucker. Yeah. So they'll be swimming along. So somebody caught that caught that bass, and then the and musky the grabs it. Right? got a hold of it. That's so they just, don't have the musky. They just have the bass. Right. So you got to let them turn them and then set the hook. Then you'll catch the musky. Right. But so that's what we did. And at about 17 minutes, it took off, started to run. I set the hook and I caught a 52 inch muskie first time Ooh. out. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. It felt like I set the hook in a log. That is a big fucking yeah. thing. Yeah, really cool stuff. 52 inch muskie. Yeah. Yeah. They're uh, northern pike fishing is very fun. I've done that in Alberta. Some of my uh, favorite times. They hit hard. Yeah. And so the English river system where we used to go, if you catch a, you know, a pike this long, you leave it on the hook because a big one's coming. Right. And the first time it happened to me, scared the living shit out of me. Right? So when you catch a pike that's two feet long and you, you just leave it on the hook. Let it swim around. Up there anyway. And you're just Up hoping there. that No, you're not hoping. Bigger. It's coming. Really? It's coming. Wow. Yeah. So a big well, one's going to one come. Here? It's going right now. Yeah, watch this. <laughs> Fucking cannibals. Cannibals in the, the babe, cold water world. Remember Babe Winkleman, the professional yeah, fisherman? Yeah, sure. 
Watch oh, this. so this one is right there. There it comes. And he's just holding it over this bigger one that's underneath it. They're such a crazy animal, too. Like, pikes seem prehistoric. And they are cannibals, without a doubt. Yeah. Babe Winkleman, I watched a video while I was in Canada fishing. We were at the lodge, and Babe Winkleman's asking this guy who's a, an Indian guide. He goes, so what do pike eat? And the guide goes, uh, pike. They eat pike. And he goes, no, what do pike eat? He goes, pike. It's like, they breed so they have food. <laughs> That's what they eat. That's just they're just aggressive, mean fish. Yeah, and they live in that dog eat dog cold water environment where there's three yeah. feet of ice above them half the time. Right, right. Yeah. Well, all those animals up there, like like we were talking about bears, about bears being cannibals and right. pike being cannibals and the fucking deer three hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah. It's just a tough, Hardcore. tough world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean when it gets that goddamn cold, it's a a tough world. Then you go to a whole nother level and go to places like Africa and Australia. And it's hot. It's a another world, too. Everything's yeah. deadly in Australia. Yep. I wouldn't even want to live there. That's right. Adam Greentree, listen to Pat Miletic. My friend Adam, <laughs> who shot that uh, water buffalo head in Australia, he keeps trying to get me to go down there and hunt with, me, with him. And he's, every time he sends me pictures of spiders that can kill you, a lizard that can kill you, Brown a snake snakes, that can all kill that. you. Yeah, everything. Everything kills you. Centipedes. And they have these gigantic 2,000-pound buffaloes that are super hyper-aggressive. Right. And they're roaming around. Smash you. Yeah, well, they have to kill them, though. That's another thing. It's like the grizzly bear thing. They don't have predators. Right. You know, in, in Alaska. But you they're know, herbivores, so they're kind of meant to be hunted in my mind. Right? Yes. You know no, I, mean? I agree. But there's nothing to hunt them out there. Right. The problem with uh, Australia is that these are invasive species. They uh, brought pretty much everything over there. So the ranchers brought them there or something for Someone for brought beef? them there a long time ago. New Zealand's the craziest place because New Zealand is essentially, uh, they, they set it up as a wild game park for rich uh, Euro Europeans. Right. Long time ago. And so now they have these enormous stags and all these huge animals that live there, but no Predators. predators. So sometimes they have to thin the herd. They have to fly over with helicopters and just yeah. gun them down. Well, they hunt. I mean, we're allowed. They made a rule in Bettendorf, Iowa, that within city limits, you could hunt deer with a bow. Yeah, yeah. Within city limits, because there's just so many of them. You see a right. herd of 50 of them. They do that in Pennsylvania, too. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of places where they just get so overrun that right. they have what they call urban hunting. Yeah. Where people set up tree stands in their backyard. And you, should, you know, uh, as far as the fishing goes, you should go noodling. Noodling for catfish? Yeah. You're going to bite your hand? Yes. Fuck that. That seems so stupid, because occasionally you fuck up and get a snapping turtle, right? Or a beaver. Ah! Fucking beaver! <laughs> Imagine a beaver that can chew down a tree. Imagine what it'd do to your wrist. Oh, it would hurt. Uh, it would definitely hurt. Fuck I did it one man. time, and that was it. Uh, you I, went noodling one time? Yeah, I caught did a you get lucky? Yeah, I caught a, yeah. It was like 14-pounder, you know. They but when they snap down giants. on your arm, it scares the shit out of you. Oh, I'm sure. Right. Now, what is the idea? Is that the catfish thinks you're intruding? Or no, the, they think it's a fish. Oh, they do think it's oh, yeah, that's your so hand's stupid. a fish. And they go, yeah, so your hand is bait. Yeah. Fuck that. I like fishing <laughs> poles. I like to be in a boat or on the shore. I like right. all, the, all the sophisticated, intelligent things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, how's it, how's it uh, been working with Jimmy Smith? I love that guy. I'm He's brilliant. Got him He's brilliant. He's yeah. a very smart guy. I tried guy. to get him hired about four years ago. Yeah. And I was, because the UFC was looking for guys, first of all, I was trying to do less commentary because I was traveling too much and I was trying right. to do less. I was like, you got to hire this guy. He's the yeah. best. Yeah. He's really, really He's good. He's smart. I love we're listening doing to our him. First, we're doing our first show together in April. Okay. The Tony Ferguson, Habib Nurmagomedov fight. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Khabib versus Tony is going to be, it's a perfect fight for, for you know, us So to, who's color and play by play then? Is he doing play by play and you're doing color? No, no, or? no. John Annick's doing okay. play by play and, and Jimmy John's and an awesome I are guy. both doing color. 
Yeah. We're just going to have fun. He's right. a friend, you know, and mm -hmm. he's been on the podcast a bunch of times. Right. We're buddies. So it'll be, yeah. it'll be a good time. And, and didn't he, he cut his teeth um, doing a TV show about combat sports? Or, yeah. Or about, he did, what about was fighting that? around the world or whatever, learning yeah. different arts. Was it called Fight Sport? What was it called? Something like that. Fight Quest. Fight okay. Quest. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah, he did that. But, I mean, I think he's, but he also had MMA fights, and right. he's a legit black belt in jiu-jitsu. Right. No, he knows his stuff. super smart and well-read guy, too. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited that he's on board. Yeah. I always liked listening to him. Yeah, I Bellator did. fucked up. They fucked up, and they let that I guy couldn't. Go. I was wondering what, so, what was, I'm not to pry, but my guess was he just asked for more money, probably because he had an offer from the UFC. They wouldn't match it, so he... Well, whatever. they didn't want him leaving for the UFC four years ago when I tried to get him hired. Right. And um, there was like a big hullabaloo and they wound up keeping him. And then I think his contract was up. And I think the way he described it was they actually wanted to give him less money okay. than he was getting. And it's really? like, I think they're just experiencing some severe budget cuts. Right, if right. you think about Bellator's market, like what they're trying to do, they don't have a pay-per-view business, right. you know? And if you don't have a pay-per-view business, where's the bulk of all your money coming from? It's like kind of bleeding Viacom. Right. I just, told, I just thought, you know, when it happened, I said, why didn't they change the name when Coker was brought in to take over? Yes. It made zero sense to me because Bellator had that, you know, from Bjorn Rebney, I've never been a Bjorn Rebney fan. Bjorn Rebney, you know, from that boxing promoter type, you know, whatever it was. And everybody that I talked to in that, in that business, they were all terrified and intimidated and everything else. Of it was him? a lot of shit. Yeah, it was just yeah, a lot. I've of never met the guy. I don't know anything about yeah. him other than the bad things that I've heard from fighters. Right, and so you know, King Mo calling him a dick rider. <laughs> <laughs> King Mo, and King, King Mo, King Mo, and I go back and forth. We on on the internet on Facebook and stuff. I, I'll deliberately piss him off on po uh, political stuff and just get him stirred up. <laughs> I get him. I he's get him an so underappreciated talent when it comes to fighting. Too, yeah, no, he's you know? a, he, that guy was. Had Talk some serious physical problems though, like right. with uh, MRSA. He had some yeah. serious staph infections, right, right. some real bad ones that wrecked him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that fucking shit scared. He's me. a great guy though. We talk, we talk now and then when I he's see him and stuff. Guy. He is. Yeah. He's a cool dude. And uh, but uh, God, where, where were we? What were we talking about? But, Bellator. Yeah, but the Bellator. Name. Why, they should have changed the name. Yeah, it's just synonymous with tournaments, and a, a guy loses the title, and suddenly he's thrown back into a tournament. He's already made his name. Yeah, it's just it's a just dumb a name. shitty business model. Yeah, and I Bellator just, was for the Spanish-speaking crowd, right? Wasn't right. that what they were trying to get out I of that? I think it's whole a thing? Latin word, right? I think it's or a Roman word for Something. gladiator or some yeah. shit. But yeah, it started out as. Um, wasn't it on like ESPN Deportes or something like that? Yeah, yeah. It just, but it just yeah. didn't make sense with Coker taking over, and I, I don't want to watch the Geritol Posse fight. I That's don't, all I, they're doing. I don't want to see a Pat Militich fight. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to see it. Right? Everybody's, right. you know. Yeah. I love some of those guys. Right. But I don't want to watch it. I agree. It's, it's, you know, it's a young man sport. It's guys that are animals, fast movers, just beasts, yeah. invincible human beings in their mid twenties to thirty, whatever, early thirties. A guy that's 45 years old, it's just not, not just 45, but 45 years old with MMA miles on him. Yeah. That's the real right. issue. Right. It's that these guys, their bodies have been beaten up for so many decades in the gym and all the years of wrestling and kickboxing. And yeah. They're just not the same. No. You know? No. Yeah. It, it takes its toll. It definitely takes its toll and you're just not... You're just not the same. I mean, guy. there's part of me that respects the shit out of a guy like Hoist Gracie. He's still a fucking savage at 50 right. years of age, yeah. ready to throw down with anybody. He wouldn't fight me. He wouldn't? Son of a. When was this? I've been trying to. I 
I, I mean, with Bellator, I said, freaking get Gracie to fight me. <sighs> well, when he was fighting Shamrock, I, I confronted Shamrock on Axis. That was one of the worst fights that I had. Oh, call. it was bad. It was when Matt beat the shit out of him. Oh, when Matt sad. took his back yeah. and was smashing him. And I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, this is, this is so mismatched. So like, the voice is in a different era. And Matt is, even though Matt's not ranked, he's a legit black belt. Right, right. Yeah. And a stud wrestler. Yeah. And a physical freak. Mm -hmm. and, and, and super experienced with modern, high-level MMA. Right, right. Whereas Hoist was living in the past. Yeah. And the thing was with that, that was after Rob Lawler, Rory Markham, myself, Tim Sylvia, Gan McGee, Chuck Liddell, all of us were on that movie set in Mexico, mm -hmm. that Paul Walker film. Okay. Right. Paul was a great guy. He's he was legitimately a, a good human being. I'm sure you knew him and all that. I sort didn't of stuff. know him, but, but I heard the great things the about stuff, him. The stuff that he did on the set to stick up for the small guys was incredible. Uh, maybe we got time to talk about it, but not or not. But um, we had gotten done with that. We'd become friends with Paul Walker and Oakley Lemon, who was his stunt double for everything. And um, the stunt guys were all really cool with us. They, we kind of gravitated towards them because they're stunt guys and we're fighters. We got along mm -hmm. really well with them. But Lawrence Fishburne was on the set, the Carradine Brothers. You know, I'm, I'm a kid from Iowa going, this is fucking awesome, man. Right. These, are, these are cool dudes. Right? Just to be around these guys. But um, So they were all at that fight in L.A. And Paul Walker and all his actor buddies were in one row. Right behind them was Oakley Lemon and all his stunt guys. And so Paul Walker was a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu student. He, you know, loved that. Right. And so they were cheering for Hoist. All the stunt guys were cheering for Matt. Right? They're the hardcore, like, you know. So anyway, Matt just dismantles him, wrecks him completely. And, and I turn around. I'm up on the deck outside the cage, and I turn around. And Paul Walker and all these actor buddies are like this. Like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe this just happened. Standing on the chairs behind them is Oakley Lemon and all the all the stunt guys going, "Fuck yeah, military. <laughs> this is awesome." It was it was, but I saw half that crowd crying, yeah, because they saw a god get destroyed. You right. know what I mean? Well, they saw a hero too. I mean, right. Hoist is like for martial arts, he he was a legitimate hero. He was right. the first guy to win the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and yeah. the way he did it was like, oh, look at this. These guys using technique that we didn't even know existed. Little skinny guy mm -hmm. that's dismantling people. And the thing was, with all of that, you know, then the Gracies came back with, Hughes was just a better athlete and used all jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu to beat Gracie jiu-jitsu. And <laughs> so I went through all the stuff. He hit a duck under on Hoist when Hoist tried to hit him with an elbow right. wrestling. Hit him with a half Nelson when Hoist tried to regain guard when Matt took his back. There was just a bunch of wrestling mixed in there, right? right? Yeah. And so then they brought out Almeida. Almeida was their dog to come and beat Matt. Right, right. right so they right. put in Almeida, who was bigger than Matt. You know, he's a big dude for that weight division. Well, Matt deliberately hit him with a wrestling front headlock and choked him unconscious. Well, it was a position that a lot of jiu-jitsu guys are used to being in there, and they just relax because they're waiting for you to spin to the back. Yeah. But instead of spinning to the back, Matt just cranked that well, fucker that torque, down when you shut stuff the, the head, out. When you stuff the head under the armpit mm -hmm. and you crank that down and, yeah. and twist, it, it crushes you. Just get, you get choked. That's well, all especially there's... a gorilla like Matt. Right. And so when they did the interview, you were probably the guy doing the interview. Yes, and he goes, I was. He goes, you know, it was just nice to use wrestling on a jiu-jitsu guy. Yeah, and to put him <laughs> unconscious. Right. Not just you, yeah. I don't think Ricardo knew that that could put him out. Right. You know, I, yeah. I mean, a lot of us have been in those positions before, but it's usually a transitionary position where a guy turns and gets your yeah. back. Unlike, no one's ever done it since either, by the way. No. No, no. one's ever choked but anybody But guys in wrestling, since. guys in wrestling will use that stuff. 
you know, like Dave Lilovich, who wrestled for Purdue. Dave and Joey Lilovich, they were all Americans at Purdue, and they were beasts. And obviously, Lilovich, they were Croatians, psycho Croatians in Michigan City, Indiana, where they grew up. And Lilovich used to use a move that they named the Lilovich, where it was, uh, you'd include, what the fuck's the name of it? Not a Darce, but. Anaconda choke? An anaconda, it was an anaconda right. in college wrestling that looked like you had a front headlock. And he would choke people unconscious. As soon as they'd go limp, he'd grab the chin, roll them, and pin them. Uh, that's, that's he was doing right it all the I time. I heard about that. So yeah. Dave Lilovich uh, pinned Bill Tate from Iowa State. Bill Tate was a Waterloo, Iowa guy. And he put him asleep. He put him asleep and pinned him in the, in the NCAA championships. Is that illegal? Oh, it's totally illegal, but referees <laughs> didn't understand it because it looked like you had the arm included in the headlock, right? Right. But if you do have an arm included in a headlock, is it your fault if a guy goes asleep? No. Not at all. But, so they would, but is it they illegal would, to pin him? If the referee recognized he went limp, they would stop the match for a potentially dangerous hold or whatever. So what you'd have to do is get some of these really bad UFC referees to referee wrestling, <laughs> and they would have no idea right. the guy was out. Yeah, yeah. But there's guys doing that. Do you see at the NCAAs the guy hitting the key lock on the guy trying to break his arm? No. Yeah. Didn't yeah. Uh, Mark Schultz do that in the Olympics? Uh, you know, I'm not he sure. He ripped a guy's fucking arm off with that. Uh, I believe he was disqualified. I mean, the Schultz brothers were just scary animals. human beings. Dave Schultz was just yeah. unbeatable. Animals. They were trying to build people to beat him over in Russia. When Remember when Mark fought? He fought Big Daddy Goodrich? Oh, and, and then threw him around, ragdolled, ragdolled him. him. But then in the movie, they, had, they used a different guy. They didn't have him fighting Big Daddy Goodrich in the movie. They had him fight some Russian guy. Was that Foxcatcher or something? Yeah, it was a bullshit scene. I was like, why would you do that? This is actual real history. Right, right. You really have a guy who's like one of the best wrestlers to ever fight in MMA. To us, it was a real historical moment. And he took it on last second notice. Yeah, he fought Big Daddy Goodrich. We all remember it. Yeah. But in this fucking movie, you faked it. You put someone else in. Right. So what else did you fake? What other, what other bullshit was in this movie right. where you're pretending this is a historical recreation yeah. of a real national crime that everybody heard about? It was a real tragedy, yeah. and uh, it was a tragedy against a guy who was one of the best wrestlers that America had to offer. Yeah. For, I, felt, I felt like it was one of the worst examples of what Hollywood does, the arrogance of Hollywood. To do to a real story. A real story. Yeah, they yeah. decided, fuck Big Daddy Goodrich, why have him in there? Right. I mean, that would be like Mike Tyson pretending Mike Tyson won the fucking world title against Ivan Drago or something. Yeah. Really, it would be yeah. something no, akin it's to moronic. that. It's like, everybody yeah. knows what yeah. the real fight was. You know, being an Iowa guy, this whole California experience and Hollywood and all this stuff, Freaks me the fuck out. It should. It does. It's just some. I, I was out here pitching TV shows before the Ultimate Fighter. I was pitching a, an Ultimate Ultimate Fighter show to Kevin Riley, who was the president of NBC at the time, and John Hirschfeld, who you know, mm -hmm. right? John Hirschfeld goes, "Look, you're going to have maybe five, ten minutes with these people." Right. right. I had them laughing for an hour and a half, and they're like, "This is awesome." I love this show. I love this idea. And mine was much different than The Ultimate Fighter, right? It, it actually made sense. The four pillars of MMA and competing in each one and all that sort of stuff, right? Well, he called us personally and he goes, you know, we, the board talked about it and the board just, he goes, I couldn't get it through. They're, they just don't feel mainstream's ready for this type of thing mm -hmm. and all that. Then The Ultimate Fighter came out on Spike and the rest was history. But every time I'd, I had one show sold to stars, the guy that used to be the president of HBO, remember him? Which guy? The guy that got in trouble. Got in trouble, for, right? Yeah. I can't remember his name now offhand. I don't remember. Brett, Rhett, no. Rex? No. Something Albrecht? Yeah. Chris Albrecht? Chris Albrecht. That's it. 
I had a show sold, and then they were going to co-brand it with Spartacus, and then the lead actor from Spartacus got terminal cancer, and they couldn't co-brand them together, and that deal fell apart. Then another one that I had sold fell apart because of the collapse in 2008, and I was like, dude, I can't win anything. Like well, I had it's deals It's a crazy set. business also. Like If you're wow. an outsider and you're coming in here to try to pitch things, there's so many people they already know that are pitching things. Right, right. Like you got to imagine if you're a guy that's a producer or you know uh, uh, an executive, rather, at some sort of a network, You've got people knocking on your door all day long. And you're used to quality from certain people. Yeah. Or what yeah. you want to see. Right. You've seen yeah. their work before. Yeah. Right, right. And it's very hard for an outsider to get in. Oh, dude. I finally just went, fuck it. Yeah. I had so many concepts written on a laptop. I'd sit up all hours of the night writing concepts for shows, all that sort of stuff. You know what's interesting? Went, this thing that you're doing for fun, your uh, conspiracy farm, that's probably your best way in. Podcasts are the best way in. Because you could build an audience, an undeniable audience. Well, and we want to go to, you know, black sites, CIA black sites, and, and, and arrest us and drag our ass in there, right? We want to get in trouble, right? We want to go to places where well, we're going to... you gonna, don't want that. We're going to push... You the, say you want that. You don't want that. I don't... Okay, I get what you're saying, but <laughs> we want to push the envelope, right? We right. want to push the envelope, and we want to, we want to expose the real facts behind right. what's really going on and it would cause some heat i'm sure that we'd eventually get a call you know where you need to kind of divert off the path you're on you, you know? think so but, oh I'm, I, without a doubt you looking forward to that call weren't you starting to do a show like that though? i did joe rogan questions everything but right. mostly it was on bigfoot and ufos and so stuff you're not going to get in trouble for and aliens right well it was mostly almost all bullshit that's yeah. the problem and i right. was much more interested in conspiracy theories before i did that show but in the six months that i did that show and all these different people that i interviewed and all the stuff you saw in the air was just a fraction of the, right. the total mass of all the people that i talked to right mostly was bullshit mostly yeah. is crazy people right. mostly these people that just have a, a bad way of looking at reality yeah. like they're, they're they they have confirmation <laughs> bias and the way they look at things, they just have this very distorted version of what the truth is. And they also want Bigfoot to be real. They want aliens to be real. They right. want the government to be spraying shit out of planes above us all the time. It's all just But we've had uh, We've had Brennan, who was head of the CIA, admit to that, though, at least. Well, they admit to one thing, that yeah. they have looked into weather modification. Right. But the idea that every fucking Southwest flight is spraying right. no, aluminum and yeah. all this different shit in the air. No. For sure, they've experimented on using it for warfare. Yeah. I mean, they've looked into everything. They've looked into Spray the how, atmosphere over, yeah. your, enemy, over sure. your enemy and have storms break out on them. There's that. And also to uh, look, you know, in Abu Dhabi, they make it rain every week. They make it rain 52 oh, times a year. Yeah. They okay. just do it with, they just throw money in the air and it fucking rains. Wow. Like they just figure out a way to cloud seed. And that right. cloud seeding has been around forever. That's yeah. real. Yeah. But that's not what you're seeing when you see planes fly overhead and you see those clouds that form behind the planes. That yeah. is a reaction between the jet engines, the condensation in the atmosphere, the heat of the jet engine. And I was it's never sold recreative. on, I, for a long time, I was never sold on that at all. It's ridiculous. You know, I was never, you know, and the 9-11 the conspiracies and stuff like that. The only thing that I've noticed about that is you can see the detonations going off on building seven when it never got you hit. don't see detonations what you well, see I is floors few, collapsing right. and the pressure of these floors collapsing causing these windows to blow out right this is just what would happen if something was I, but i don't subscribe anyway. to it is what i'm saying right. i don't I know subscribe what you're saying. to it i don't subscribe to it either i mean uh, who knows what the fuck happened 
with all the shit behind the scenes. But what we do know is that a bunch of people capitalize on that, which makes it look like a conspiracy. And all the intelligence reports that came out before that happened was that the terrorists planned on using mm-hmm. planes as missiles to take down buildings. Yeah. We knew that, yeah. at least. That's where I stopped. I lean much more towards incompetence than I do massive conspiracy. A bunch of Barney Fife's, Keystone yeah. Cops. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Right, but who knows? Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, marathons, about ultra marathons. Like right. you, you got into. When did you start getting into this? It was a couple of years ago. John Byrne, who is a professor at a college in my hometown, and he and his family had taken martial arts from me for years, and he one day walked up to me. I think it was two thousand and twelve or earlier and he goes hey he goes i want to thank you for all the confidence you've given me and he was an amazing guy a very very smart guy and a great athlete great basketball player the guy's now 53 years old i think and never gets hurt he can do anything he wants and he does not get hurt he's just a genetic freak right but he comes to me and he goes thank you for giving me the confidence i love the martial arts training but i'm going to try something new and i said what are you going to try and he goes this thing called the leadville 100 and i go what the hell's that he goes, well, it's a high-altitude, 100-mile race through the Colorado Rockies. And I go, how many days is this supposed to take? And he goes, oh, no, you do it all at once. I'm like, what? You're going to do 100 miles without basically stopping. He goes, yeah. He goes, about every 10 miles you get new food and fluids and you just keep going. I went, awesome. Go do it, man. And he went and he finished. He barely, barely made the cutoff, which is 30 hours. You have to do it, right? And so I thought, this is really cool. And it was a couple years ago where he sent me a message and he goes, I'm training for Leadville again. I go, maybe it's a good idea for me to jump in. I, I want to do something extreme. And since I quit fighting, I could never fight. There was just that void in my life, right? And my health was deteriorating. I couldn't figure out how to get back in shape because um, I was in pain constantly. I had asthma, all this other stuff. I found out that that was gluten. I had a gluten problem, right? And I thought, before that, I thought if somebody said I'm, I'm gluten sensitive or I have allergy to gluten, I'd go, whatever. What, the, what is gluten, right? Right. But I was running into so many physical problems, I started training with these guys, and I'd be crippled for two, three days. I'd be in so much pain that I couldn't do anything. And then my buddy goes, and I was getting ready to eat, start eating Oxycontins. That was, I mean, I could survive on Motrin, all the pain, everything else. But I got to the point where I'd flying, I'd walk five gates in an airport and have to stop and sit down. I was in so much pain. My arthritis was just horrible. I'd be soaked in sweat, everything else. So I had Jesus. all these problems. And I figured if I train with these guys, it'll bring me out of this this point in life and it'll change my life and i'll get back to the you know pat milicic of of the old well i was falling apart worse because of the intensity of the training so my buddy did blood tests on me he goes you're going to be dead in three years from a heart attack there's so much inflammation in your body if you don't stop eating gluten i go what the hell is gluten he goes wheat and soy you have to stop eating it or you're dead soy's gluten yeah yeah wheat and soy so it's all how how, wait a minute i thought it's all modified grains right soy 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 has been modified like black beans have been modified for a certain amount of time your body doesn't digest black black beans they're like a waste of time to eat so but the the wheat and the soy is what was causing the inflammation along with the sprain that goes on with wheat fields and Mm -hmm. soy fields it's really bad right yeah so anyway yeah it's it's bad bad stuff so anyway he said you'll be dead in three years from a heart attack there's so much inflammation you have asthma, you have three forms of arthritis, your digestion system, your, your digestive system is destroyed. He goes, how's your temper been lately? I go, not real good. He goes, your brain's getting destroyed. Your thinking process is screwed up because the chemicals that your stomach is given off is affecting the way you think. It's your second stomach or your second brain, right? He goes, so you have to understand that. So I quit cold turkey, stopped eating, 
took about a week before my arthritis subsided, started to go away. I went from running three-mile runs and feeling miserable for three days to 10 months later, I did a 75-mile run. In ten, in 10 months, though, from from not eating that garbage. You did a 75, was it a race, the 75-mile run? No, it was actually a training run. It was a training run with the guys. And, they, you know, they, they worked me up from, um, you know, three-mile run, 10-mile run, 12-mile, 15, 18, 20, you know, drop back down to a 10-mile run on the weekend. They'd always do the long runs on the weekends. And a lot of times I was doing these runs on no sleep because I'd done a broadcast Friday night. Get home, get home uh, the next day on Saturday, have no sleep because, you know, you can finish late and you got to fly home first thing in the morning is what I always did. Right. Operating on no sleep and then starting, we did 30-mile run, 35, 45, 50, and then a 75-mile run along with the stuff training during the week that a lot of it I was doing on the road too. And uh, it's just an amazing group. It's probably the coolest group of people I've been around. And, and David Clark, who uh, is a guy that served as a role model for me just reading his book, which is called Out There, um, Ultra Recovery, a guy that was 320-pound alcoholic who changed his life one day and decided to become a badass ultra runner. Um, it just, being around those people, they, they don't show pain. They don't, they just don't show pain. Even when they're in misery, um, it's, it's a weird mindset. It's, it's so much different than MMA, where 25 minutes of misery in an exhausting fight is now that I've gone through some of this stuff, it's it's a joke. It's a complete joke. Because when you're out there running 75 miles, 50 miles, I ran 50 miles in 97 degree heat with the same percentage of humidity on a blacktop country road in Iowa, getting scorched, went through probably four hours of heat stroke. My brain was getting cooked. I mean, I literally felt like I was, I could die at any time. And these guys are laughing at me. They're laughing. They're, they had me in a field at mile 30, uh, farmer's yard, uh, hosing me down with cold water from the farmer's house just to get my body temperature down so I could get going again, right? Wow. Just crazy stuff like that. They're, they're just hardcore. It's, it's an amazing group of people, and I, I encourage people to work their way up, try and find a running group and try it because it's, it's cool shit. How often do you do it now? I've backed off of late. I've been doing more kind of getting back into grappling a little bit, doing a little bit of kick, kickboxing really? stuff. Really? Grappling even with your neck? I, I tell people, look, don't go for the gold. I, I, <laughs> you know, and I had to tell the right. – and, and there's a lot of good grapplers at the place I go to. Um, Summit, it's a wrestling and jiu-jitsu facility, CrossFit's in there, a bunch of other stuff. But some of the guys that I used to train are the senior guys down there, and there's some really technical guys, some 10th Planet guys, actually. Joel Laughlin uh, follows, follows that system quite a bit, and he's he's former Special Forces guy. And, you know, I just said to everybody the first few times I went down there, I go, look, I have no desire to be a world champion again. I've been paralyzed twice from the neck down. I have no desire to get into friggin' brawls with any of you. I go, I'm here to get back in shape and just grapple and kind of right. have fun again. You know right. what I mean? So let's, let's understand that first and foremost. If, you, if right. you, you go for crazy submissions on my neck, I'm not going to like you a whole lot. Right, you know? right. So... Um, so I'm doing a lot of that. I'm, I'm slowly getting kind of back into the mindset of ramping back up with the running and, and stuff like that. My brother, who's 58, who never ran, he did Leadville last year. Was it last year? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a guy that never ran. And most people take their lifetime to be able to do a marathon. He did 50 miles at Leadville, missed the cutoff at 50 miles. But he's 58 years old and never ran before and just he was in love with it. He fell in love with it. He's in the mountains. You know, I already live my sports dreams, Joe. I already won a world title. I, I've, I've done some cool shit. So to me, running that, when I saw the course and went, this is 
this is intimidating. This is to look at a mountain and know you got to go over it right. at the 40 to 50 mile mark and then 50 to 60 going back. It's, it's some scary shit. It's intimidating. My brother was totally the opposite mindset. He was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever done in my life. He goes, <laughs> bombing down that mountain was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. This is amazing. And I just went, that's the way the mind's supposed to work for stuff like this. Yeah. He got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, it is a lot of it is how you approach things, right? How you approach yeah. challenges. Like right. some people love the idea of something being very difficult. Like what a struggle. I can't believe how tough that was. You get out of it. You feel exhilarated. Yeah. Whereas other people, they look at it like, oh, no, I need a couch and a beer <laughs> and a sandwich and a good TV show about fucking and uh, you know right whatever so, but i did so i did leadville a couple years back and john Byrne and i went out two weeks early and i had to leave from colorado fly back to providence to do a broadcast and then fly back he picked me up at the airport and we went back up but while i was with him for the first couple of days we went out up mount albert which is the tallest mountain in colorado and i, I felt the altitude i felt the altitude 14.5 or whatever it was and it was it was painful on the way up and then we got caught on a storm on the top of the mountain, a bad storm, hail, downpour, and lightning hitting everywhere, all over the mountain. We had to bomb down this mountain as fast as we could, and I, I trashed my quads, right? And we're real close to the actual race at that right. point, right? It's like a week and a half away. And so then I got on a plane, flew to Providence, and I was panicking. I was like, this is some serious shit I'm about to do, right? And I started sweating. I'd never had anxiety attacks before in my life. And I'm like, what the fuck are you thinking, dude? This is some crazy stuff. And so I, I, we were getting ready to go live. And Michael Chavello looks at me and he goes, why are you soaked? <laughs> I go, I'm fucking freaking out, dude. I got to fly back to Colorado and go do this race. I'm panicking, right? And I never thought I'd be afraid of anything. But it, that, the course is that intimidating, right? Mm. So Michael goes, dude, relax. It's okay. So we did the show, everything. I got back there. And it, you know, when you're out there in the mountains, you start at four o'clock in the morning and these, they're just, they're hardcore runners, man. They're hardcore badasses. People you never, if you looked at them on the street, you go, there's no way that person could run five miles. And right. they're just smiling for a hundred miles. They're just going, going, you know, so. You know who Courtney, Courtney DeWalter is? Right, right. I had her on and she won the Moab 240. By she, how many hours? 20, she beat the, the 10, 10 hours, hours and 20 miles. She beat the second place guy. That's amazing. Yeah, right? she's Did, an were, animal. Were there people that thought she cheated to do that? Nope. That's they great. knew her. Everybody yeah. knew her. She's Hardcore. an animal. Yeah. She, she won a, a race blind. She was having some sort of retinal edema, so she couldn't see anything but her feet. Her tripped. pacer had to tell her where to go and all that I sort of stuff. I don't think she had a pacer. She tripped and fell and cracked her head open. She she went through the finish line bloody and blind. That's <laughs> and the toughest, that, and that's one of the toughest people you're ever going to meet. Right, right. And if you met her, completely unassuming, thin yeah. woman, real silly, drinks beer and eats nachos, not on some kind of crazy <laughs> diet, eats candy. Right. She's real fun to hang out with. Too. That's like She's very easy going. That's like you meet Navy SEALs and you go, they're supposed to be tough, right? Right. But I watched Navy SEALs fall apart last year when my brother was doing the race. Like, mm. just fall apart. Just really? completely, yeah. Just like. Well, if you're not physically prepared, too. Well, you, you know, know, they did. The, I know that some of them did the 50 prepared. miler out there, right? Mm -hmm. They did. The, so they were getting ready for it. But, you know, the you get dehydrated at any point or caloric deficit or all this these different altitude problems that can come about, all mm -hmm. the other stuff, you know, it's it's uh it's it's a definitely a, a mental thing that yes. it's it's wild. So fighting is the way I look at it, the best way I can explain to you is fighting is so fucking easy. Fighting in comparison. Is, yeah, I mean in reality, I mean, I was fighting like when I fought Pele when he was ranked second in the world and I was ranked first. I didn't train for six weeks for that fight because I was crippled, 
right? I was injured, low back, destroyed, all kinds of stuff. I had 12 shots of xylocaine in my back to go out and fight. Jesus Christ. And he was the number two guy in the world at the time and very he athletic. He was a fucking killer right. at the time. But he couldn't do shit to hurt me even when I was crippled. He fell back for a leg lock on me and I laughed at him. And he was like, well, that's not going to work, so let's get back. Right? But he was hanging on my head, and I'm throwing uppercuts and body shots, and he's plumbing me. He ran up my body with knees like that, you know, just a freak. But fighting is that easy. It's that simple to me because you're trying to outwit and outsmart another human being. Right. Right? When you're running for 50 miles, 75 miles, whatever, 100 miles, you're battling with yourself the entire time. Yes. That's where you get mind fucked. Right, right, right. That's the scary part about it. Because you got to face yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, you're yeah. you're when you're in the middle of a fight, especially a war, you're in the moment. You're yeah. throwing bombs, and acting, reacting, and, and just doing hit it, and and dealing with it, and toughening up. You take a minute break, drink some water, hop right back out again for five yeah. minutes. It's a, just a completely different animal. Right. Do you, do you miss the old days of no time limits? Uh, I had fun back in those days because I could go 100 miles an hour and gas people out and beat them, right? Right, with your conditioning. I enjoyed that. I, yeah. I did I did enjoy that. Um, but, you know, it is it is what it is. The There were fights in tournaments that would go 45 minutes and just, sure. you know, you can't cover that on right. TV. Right, right, right. You just can't. Like people, when you fought Dan. Was right. that a no time limit? 30 minute, 30 30, just a 30 limit? minute one round fight. Yeah, that's right? crazy. So it's just, it is what it is. People People would sit down and watch it live. But they're not going to watch it on TV. Even you know, the people that watch it live, for pay-per-view. they're going to get bummed out. Right. It's right. just not the best thing in terms of entertainment value. No. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. So it's, you know, the rounds, the the rules, all that sort of stuff. That the Give weight division. Look at some girls in bikinis as, in between rounds. <laughs> walk around you with know. the cards. And yeah. you know, I talked to John Peretti. We had John Peretti on one of my podcasts. Actually. Oh yeah. How's he doing? Uh, he's got some health issues, you know. I think he's he's. I know he's got MS and some other issues and stuff like that. But, um, you know, he he wants people to know that he's the guy that did that. He did, right? Yeah. He wants people to know I'm the guy that friggin' created all that stuff. Yeah. Well, right? he was the matchmaker at the time when I first started working for the UFC in '97. Okay. Yeah. And um, so it has been since '97. You were involved. Yeah. Yeah. I did UFC 12. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. was the. And I came in in '16. So you've been around longer than me. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember your debut. I remember um, when I was, um, I remember Mikey Burnett. How's he doing? Um, he's doing, I think, okay. I know, I know he's... he got shot, right? Yeah. In the robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a good guy. Tough motherfucker. I remember when he fought Eugenio Tadeo And wrecked him. Wrecked him. Yeah. When everybody thought that he was the next guy. Eugenio was a psychopath yeah. that friggin' went after Henzo and was kicking Henzo's ass and they shut the power down in the building so Henzo wouldn't lose. Remember yes, that? Yes, that was in Brazil, mm-hmm. right? That was craziness <laughs> back then. Yeah, but Burnett was, I mean, Mikey Burnett was a guy who was a Greco national champ, benched 405, squatted Tank. 405, stronger than shit. Tough as fuck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the old days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck, man, it's been so long. It's really interesting when you stop and think about it. How many thousands of fights have you called? I've seen way too many people get fucked up. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. I'm real numb to watching people get beat up. As like, my, and that's the thing. That's to, I would say, as my coaching career pro- progressed as I got older, you know, when you're young and you're a, full of testosterone and you're a psychopath and you're coaching, it's just, ah, oh, let's go do this. Oh. Right, right. You know, and as I got older and mellowed out, I mean, I had to lay down on the floor of the locker room before the first Hughes-Trigg fight because I knew Trigg was a dangerous dude, just a tough son of a bitch and a good wrestler, right? And I was really nervous for that fight. I had to lay on my back and just decompress for 30 minutes before that Mm. fight just to go out and just 
coach with a you know with a calm mind. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know when Hughes fought Carlos Newton after Carlos took the title from me, and Carlos comes out and we were infuriated because he's walking out with two Playboy bunnies and you know acting and it was you know it's a show right it's right. a show it's Hollywood that was when that big ramp yeah. existed right and so Hughes is standing there and I was all pumped up and I was like Matt. You, you know, we had to get Matt off a tractor on the farm to come and fight him, right? Because my automatic rematch clause got, they reneged on that and said, your choice, either Matt can fight him or somebody from another camp. But if Matt or somebody from another, if somebody from another camp fights him, you got the winner no matter what. But if Matt fights him and loses, you can, you can rematch Carlos. But if Matt wins, obviously that's kind of tough because we're buddies, right? Right. So Matt's standing inside the cage and I'm, I'm pumped. I'm absolutely pumped. And I go, you got to smash this guy. I'm screaming at him. He's got to fucking smash him. And Matt turns around and he goes, it's going to be okay, dude. <laughs> it's going to be all right. He goes, we got this, dude. We got this. And I was like, all right, all right. That was a crazy win, too. That's when, when he slammed, slammed him. him with a triangle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the entire crowd, their mouths were hanging open. They'd never yeah. seen anything like that. In their life. Well, was he kind of half out? He was, out. Triangle. he was he out. was out with a triangle and he slammed him. He knew he was going Caleb. out and slammed him and then went out. Here's the thing. Um, that's right. He jumped up and said, I won? Matt, no, Matt sits up like this and he's kind of looking around. And I dove over the cage and my, let my legs catch <clears throat> on one side so that I could barely touch Matt's head with my hand. And I scraped his hair really fast. And I'm like, get up, get up, get up, get up. I knew he was out. Right. So I go, get up, get up. And he stands up and he goes, what happened? And Jeremy goes, you just won. He's like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Wow. That was cool. That was a cool fight. Yeah. Very intense. Yeah, that was very intense. Carlos Newton was one of the most technical jujitsu guys oh, uh, of sick. his era. Yeah, he was very, he was very amazing. Athletic guy. dude. Yeah. yeah. He, one he of the best changed. fights I've ever seen to this day was he and Dan Henderson. Oh, yeah. That was an insane fight. Yeah. Those that guys was a great fight. That was 97, wasn't it? 97 or Possibly, yeah. Somewhere in that area? Yeah, yeah. That was one of my early days. I remember when Chuck Liddell made his UFC debut. I think he fought Noe Hernandez, and I'm pretty sure he was wearing wrestling shoes. Noe Hernandez trained with me for that fight. and Noe, got, Noe got hurt before that fight. I can't remember what he injured, but Noe couldn't train hard for that fight, so he wasn't in great shape, but he was knocking the shit out of Chuck until he ran out of gas. I mean, he was boxing Chuck's ears off. You know that fight, Peretti came to Chuck and told him if you want to keep working and keep fighting for the UFC, do not take this guy down. Oh, really? Yeah, because they found out that Chuck was a wrestler. Ah, wow. Those, those are the dirty days. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Gary Shaw, the Gary Shaw telling uh, Petrozelli and Shamrock yes. type stuff, yes. right? Yes. Petrozelli had to stand up with Kimbo because he replaced Shamrock. Shaw. Man, I forgot about that guy. One of the greatest interviews ever was Dana White after that. Remember when he looks at the camera yeah. and he goes, you can't do that. It's fucking illegal. Goes, That's fucking illegal. Yeah, <laughs> it is fucking illegal. Yeah. That was the dumbest matchup, too. When I There's a video of me in the green room of the punchline in Atlanta, Georgia. I had gotten off stage and I was waiting to see Ken Shamrock fight Kim, uh, Kimbo. Okay. And I was like, what a fight this is going to be. Yeah. I get off stage and they say, oh, Ken Shamrock got hurt warming up and Kimbo is now fighting Seth Petruzzelli. And I go, oh, this is a terrible idea for Kim. And I said it. And I said, like, to the camera, right. it's like the craziest thing ever. I go, Seth Pastorelli's going to fuck him up. Right. I'm like, this is. Because we're assuming he's going to take him down and submit him. And he, I thought he was going to KO him. Did I you? thought Seth was a way better striker. I thought Seth he's was a, just going to take him down. I thought Seth is a karate striker, like a yeah. legit seasoned yeah. black belt. Right. And, and, and uh, he could submit guys, but he's just a. He was on another level as a mixed martial artist. I was yeah. like, Kimbo's. And a stiff. veteran. So here's me. While this is happening, 
If I'm wrong, you'll never see this. Well, to go to the beginning. Hold on. It's where did it say in the beginning? Is fighting Kimbo Slice. This is a last-minute replacement. I gotta think Seth, Pre Seth Pretzel is gonna fuck him up. If I'm wrong, you'll never see this. So it, so it happens in the green room. It literally, the fight is six seconds long. Motherfucker, by the way. I just think Seth Pretzel. Here we go. This is why they do this. Oh, same busy Kimbo. Well, uh-oh. Oh, save America. Oh my God, you're fucking right. <laughs> That's it. That was. You look. You look older there. Well, the beard. Yeah. I had that full beard back then. Right. That was after Evan died. When uh, Evan Tanner died, we all grew beards. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was a bad deal, man. It was sad. Very bad. Yeah, that guy was. Um, I think he rolled out there into the desert on a mission. I think. Might have, you, you know, know I, mean? might, I mean, maybe when he was out there, he decided to go that way, or maybe he just really did get lost and couldn't find his water, but right. that's one of the hottest places on earth. Yeah. I mean, it gets to the 130s and stuff yeah. out there. Yeah. It's just not Yeah, good. that was a bummer. It was a bummer. He was a great guy. He was I, an I really interesting was. guy, too, yeah. you know? Yeah. He was a guy that really wasn't into money, really was I mean, he was yeah. into the journey yeah. and, and yeah. difficult quest. He probably would have loved ultra running. Yeah, absolutely. And he fought down what was the show in texas that they were doing back then because he cut his teeth in that circuit down there in texas i can't remember what shows those I don't were remember he fought texas fighting championship or something he was a tough motherfucker remember yeah. when he fought dave terrell oh yeah i mean dave terrell had him in a guillotine he wouldn't tap and then he started smashing him and that's how he won the terrell title. was talented fuck yeah he was but he was mentally like he would fall apart right well, he did in that fight, or at least he gassed out. Yeah. You know, what, something happened in that fight. Right. But yeah, that was the word is that his talent never matched up to his performances. Yeah. And as a jujitsu player, though, he was very, very successful. Like, I, I saw him fight in Abu Dhabi. He was a fucking phenom, man. I mean, right. he was phenomenal. And yeah. to this day, produces some of the best black belts. Who's the best grappler on the planet now, you think? That's a good question. It's hard to tell. I mean, it's probably Donaher's guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's probably Gordon Ryan or maybe Gary Tonin or one of those guys. Right, but right. then there's a lot of really high-level jiu-jitsu guys. See, the thing is, these no one is caught up to Donaher's leg game. Like, um, there's a few guys... Um, there's Craig Jones out of Australia that's on a real okay. high level. There's, yeah. a, there's a bunch of guys that are that are closing in, but it seems like what Donaher is doing, and he, I mean, Donaher is such a fucking wizard. Right. He's such a genius, and his uh, application of his mind, you know, because Donaher's severely crippled. He's got a one fake hip, and they're gonna, they're gonna replace one of his knees. Right. And he hurt his uh, knee a long time ago from a rugby accident, and they, his knee was so loose and fucked up that they shortened his tendons to, and, and stitched him back together again, but they shortened him too much. Ah. And he never could fully extend his leg. Okay. And he was fucked up from then on out. And yeah. then it, it caused a, a defect in his hip. Okay. Because wore of the, it out. Yeah, then. it wore out his hip. So he's severely injured. Yeah, yeah. But his mind. He's a genius. Is a, I mean, he's a very, very, very intelligent guy, superior right. intel intellect. And his the way he's applied. Like that thought process to jujitsu is very, just incredibly yeah. unique, and so those guys, Eddie Cummings, Nicky Ryan, Gordon Ryan, like this, this the Donaher Death Squad, what they call. Right. I have to think that at least in terms of accomplishments, I mean, that guy submitted uh, Cyborg Ricardo Abreu. I mean, the fucking easy. If you yeah. watch that fight, right. and I had. Um, John Donaher on the podcast break down what he did to Cyborg. Cyborg's a multiple-time world champion, yeah, yeah. and and Gordon Ryan went right through him. And Gordon Ryan's twenty-two years old. Yeah, I think somewhere around that. Well, yeah, I just look at I look at you know great grapplers throughout history from back 
the early Gracies, you know, the farmer burns, all these mm -hmm. scary dudes yeah. and stuff. And as it moves forward in time and just watching guys, how they, it's almost like a, a constant cyclical. Uh, there's a cycle there of you, you learn how to defend stuff, you hit stuff, people learn how to defend it and you move on. And mm -hmm. it's this constant cycle of it uh, and then new shit coming out and creative stuff and I just watch it evolve and go, man. I just, I wish I could stay young forever just to have fun with it. You know what I mean? Right, with your body, yeah. It's it's an unfortunate thing that your mind absorbs all these techniques and you understand how to compete better, but your body just gives out. Right, and that's you know? the thing with MMA, especially. I think it's a race to amass enough knowledge to win a title before the body gives out. Right, right. right it right. just is. Well, that's why TRT was so interesting. You know, like the TRT Vitor days, yeah. because you had Vitor juice to the tits, and <laughs> with all that experience, I mean, Vitor made his UFC debut back when I called my first fight, and when I was a post-fight interviewer, rather, right. in UFC 12. That was his debut at 19 years of age. Yeah. So here you have him at 37, juiced out of his fucking mind with muscles on his eyebrows. I mean, he was so jacked <laughs> when he fought Rockhold, when he fought right. Bisping. I mean... Uh, it, clearly, he was not just taking testosterone replacement therapy. Right. He was juiced up. Yeah. I mean, he was way above normal levels. I remember UFC Brazil. I was fighting. Uh, Vanderlei and Vitor were fighting each oh, other. Oh, yeah. Right? And you knew that was a collision. Yeah. Uh, that was two scary dudes. Vitor wore shoes for that fight. <laughs> but here's the crazy thing. I'm in my locker room. And I'm getting ready to fight. And... One of Vitor's trainers comes in. Vitor sent them to get me to come give him a pep talk. Whoa. He's sitting, that was the fight when he had hid for like three days because he was terrified. Vanderlei was so scary back he was then. Having, he was having just this, I think, a mental breakdown. Yeah. Uh, an anxiety attack about fighting Vitor, or about fighting uh, Vanderlei Silva. So he's in his locker room, and he's sitting in the corner, and he's like, with his eyes big, he's scared to death. And I walked in there, and I'm like, dude. Fucking, we're fighting for world titles. What, yeah. what are you doing? What is wrong with you? Let's fucking go. Let's fucking kill these guys. Right. right. Got him all pumped up, and he's like, "All right, Pat. All right." <laughs> well, he had gotten beaten down by Randy before that. Right. That fight right. took a lot out of him. He the, wasn't the same guy for a long time right. after that fight. Yeah. The most brutal fight I've ever seen in my life though was Omri Batesh and Don Fry. I remember that in Cobo Don, Arena Don was in Detroit. Way too big. It was way too strong. It was horrifying because. Omri had shot on him, and he's walking his feet. Don Fry's walking his feet up the cage and dropping knees straight down on back of Omri's mm, head yeah. when those were legal. Yep. And the entire crowd is roaring. Kobo Arena's packed. They're going nuts. And all you can hear over the top of everything is, um, is, is Omri's girlfriend screaming bloody murder. Like, like someone was being slaughtered in front of her, which Ooh. they were, right? right? Yeah. And then you've got Isvaldo Alves, who's an encyclopedia of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, amazing guy. And Alan Goez. And Alan Goez, I had been up there all week to help Omri get ready for the fight, right? And Alan Goez shows up the day of the fight, the night of the fight, walks into the locker room and goes, what's your name? And I go, Pat. And he goes, here's a camera. Take fucking pictures. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's the way Alan uh, treated me when we first met, right? Wow. So I'm watching Omri get mauled, just completely slaughtered. And these guys won't throw in the towel. And I'm going, you, you got to throw in, like, yeah, you this got, ain't this changing. Is, this is stupid. This yeah. is stupid. And John had stopped the fight. McCarthy pull him over. And he go, do you want to continue? And all Omri knew in English was more, more. And he's like, all right, we're going oh, again. No. And he gets slaughtered some more, pull him back off. 
more, more. Oh. Send him back out, and finally John's like, "I got this. Is we're gonna have a fatality here." This Jesus. Is, so that was that was a horrifying fight. That was the most brutal fight I've ever seen. Yeah, there's been a few of those over the years. Uh, <laughs> it's been a few of those. But listen, Pat, we just did three hours. Jesus. Three hours plus. Holy cow. Time flies by, wow. man. I'm I glad we finally did this. I'm surprised my attention span lasted this long. <laughs> Your attention span's on point, man. <laughs> it's all that ultra marathon running. Right, right. We got to do this again, man. Yeah, I'd love to. And uh, please, everybody, check out The Conspiracy Farm. Is it on iTunes, on everything? Uh, yeah. And uh, if they go to uh, chemicalfreebody.com, you would love that stuff. Okay. Chemicalfreebody.com. It's all... Uh, vegan products, sprouted greens, all kind. Of, I mean, the guy is, is that goal. your company or something? Good friend of mine, Tim okay. James, who's saving people's lives from cancer to all kinds of shit. He is healing people, veterans with all kinds of open wounds from chemical stuff, and Are he's you saving still people. Doing lion fight commentary. Uh, lion fight. We no longer cover them. We cover CES, oh. CES, and LFA right okay. now. Yeah, and that you're in town for that, right? What is the the event? Is it on Access? Uh, Access TV, Friday night, yeah. Mark Cuban's network, we're going to have a blast. going to be great fights, title fights. There's there's some uh, some great fights. So. Beautiful. All yeah. right. Pat Militich, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate Thank you. it, man. It was awesome.